the biggest worst atrocity I covered was in 2012. Uh, was 49 bodies um, that all been decapitated, all had their hands and feet cut off, dumped on a road. The Iron River is, is is the guns being trafficked from the United States to Mexico. So we're talking about every year estimates of, of more than 200,000 firearms. First issue about political corruption, it's as bad as they say. And there was the biggest ever cocaine seizure in the world. Uh, they burned it on a bonfire. Big New York Times story about it. They burned it on a bonfire. This guy in the court said, no, they didn't really burn the cocaine. This guy helped us get the cocaine back. And he starts carrying out murders and starts decapitating people, doing all this, this crazy gangster stuff. You've got this blatant buying, you know, going to shops. In some cases, going 10 AK-47s, please. Blatantly and openly these weapons and taking them down to Mexico and using them in this extreme violence. Black market gun trade, Mexican cartels, and the Iron River. This is episode 12 with Jan Grillo. Perfect. Sounds good. I'll make sure I get that over. But Yoan Grello, really excited to have you on. Like I said, you know, we were talking a little bit before getting the podcast going, but you cover one of the most important issues I think is that's facing the United States and also one of the most underreported issues realistically within the US. Obviously, you've authored many, many books, many fantastic books. And I want to start off with just talking about your most recent one. I just read it. It's fantastic. Blood Gun Money, right behind you too. Fantastic book. Honestly, just to start off from the top on that, I think you highlight a topic that is ever growing more relevancy in terms of the Iron River, in terms of what's happening down south and how the US is feeling it. So I guess to start off with, what was the inspiration to really jump into that? What what forced you to really look at this and say, this is being underreported. People are not focusing on this issue. I need to actually put something out there that not only covers it from, you know, a quick journal entry, a news report, but really an in-depth deep dive on where the guns are coming from, where their place of origin is, how they end up in Mexico, and how they're used. Not only Mexico and Latin America, but how they're used down there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Great, great to be here. Um, so yeah, so I mean I've I've been here in Mexico, came from the UK and I've been in Mexico since two thousand started reporting in 2001 and and then found myself uh, covering this crazy drug war, which escalated while I was here. Uh, so, you know, the beginning days I was kind of covering this crime story, some pretty exotic thing to cover, um, these crazy uh, gangsters with their songs about them and living these extravagant lifestyles. They somehow managed to get away from, you know, all the American law enforcement and, and Mexican military uh, and then I found myself, you know, chasing this around. And, and as the years went on, this exploded and covering uh, an armed conflict uh, or, or a weird hybrid armed conflict um, in parts of the country. Found myself covering things I couldn't have imagined. Uh, the, the biggest, worst atrocity I covered was in 2012, uh, was 49 bodies um, that had all been decapitated, all had their hands and feet cut off, dumped on a road, arrived in the morgue. Um, you know, the stench of death, um, but also, you know, covering the, these these armed groups, paramilitary-style groups, uh, shootouts, you know, could last days in some case, uh, things like 2,000 uh, federal police officers, paramilitary federal police officers fighting against 500 gunmen, you know, these kind of crazy battles happening around Mexico. Uh, and you know, just, you know, death, 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 arriving at so many of these scenes, just bodies spilled out on the road, 
bullets sprayed all over them. Talking to victims, talking to perpetrators, you know, getting to some of the the uh, the, the, the cartel guys, you know, in the early days, you know, from the lower down guys, the people smuggling drugs over the border, the killers, you know, a lot of their crazy stories, people have just committed way more murders than they can count. Um, and then more recently, and, you know, this is carrying on this whole journey um, of, you know, more than 22 years now is carrying on and, and more recently talking to more and more of the high level guys of guys who are really running, running this thing from behind the scenes who are now incarcerated or, or kind of, uh, and kind of comparing notes in some ways about what's happened this last couple of decades. It's been something absolutely insane. So, um, within this, uh, there was the issue of, of firearms. So I remember I wrote three books about this. The first book I, I wrote uh, was in, I started really putting together in 2008. Um, there was a moment covering this 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 violence, and I was in the, ta- the state of Sinaloa, which is kind of a cradle of Mexican drug trafficking, a bit like Sicily is to the mafia. Um, but I was in, in in a village in Sinaloa, and I was at a, a there have been two massacres in this village, and all of the, the the residents of the village were leaving in a convoy like refugees, and I was like, "Wow!" And like looking at this, um, this scene of them leaving like, like this is this is big. This is something going to destabilize the country with big effects. That was in two thousand eight, and I was like, "I can't, I can't tell this story only in um, you know news, you know four minute news segments or or, or like eight hundred word newspaper stories, you know." even longer features for Time magazine that I did, it couldn't really get through the deepness of what was happening here. Um, only really touching on a superficial level. So I was like, I've got to write a book about this. And that's my, my first book, El Narco, which was published in 2011, but trying to make sense of really what's happening here. Did a second book, Gangster Warlords. This is not only Mexico, this is right across Latin America and the Caribbean and comparing um, different groups, Mexico, Brazil, Honduras, Jamaica, these the structures what's really happening in terms of these organizations. And then after those, those two books, uh, this is something which I've been working on for, for years. It was the, the issue of, of, of gun smuggling, of where the firearms are coming from. A hot issue in the United States, controversial issue. Now, for some time, I'd kind of thought, well, what can I really write about this? You've got a Second Amendment in the United States. Um, people can go and buy guns. And then, but that changed in 2017 when I got an interview with a guy in prison in Mexico who's in prison for gun trafficking. Or he's in prison for a bunch of illegal firearms. The military caught him. The military caught him because his cousin had snitched him up. <laughs> he's got a classic story. But he was in there and he, he, he was running a little mini arms smuggling operation from the United States to Mexico. Um, and he told me his story. And he described how he used to go from, he's in the state of Chihuahua, he was in prison in Ciudad Juarez. And he'd cross over the border, go up to Dallas, uh, Dallas area every weekend, and buy about 12 to 15 guns, mostly AR-15s. Take them down to Mexico and sell them in Mexico um, for about $2,300 a rifle, stuff that he was buying for about 700 you know, they'd vary what he's picking up. You can do the maths, it tends to be you know, quite a significant income. He was a young guy, and so you know, he was he was working in, in construction, uh, but like doing that, you know, started to make some serious income. And he was describing how he did it. And he was like, I, I, I will go up there, and without any paperwork at all, 
by the guns. No, nothing, no ID. And he described it as a black market. Oh, the black market exists at the gun shows. You have a black market as well. So, so it was me and actually and a radio producer was there. It was like, okay, let's, let's check out his story. So we, we, we were in Juarez, drove the next day up to Dallas area, to a town called Mesquite, if anyone knows that, which is also known as the gun show capital of America. So there's a gun show every weekend, but they have very big gun shows every weekend. Went in there, recording, and, okay, check out, okay, well, who's selling guns with no ID? And, you know, you've got some which are like gun shops, which have also their, 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 their stool at the, um, at the gun show. And they're like, no, you need ID. And then we found some of us, okay, no, no ID at all. Um, and they're like private sellers. That's how they did it. So he described it as a black market, but what was actually what is known as the private sale loophole. Sometimes people call it the gun show loophole, which is a bit of a mis- mis- uh, misnomer because it actually it's not only at gun shows, but it's idea you can have a private sale and then there's no ID used. But people were clearly abusing that. We found these people, they had a bunch of brand new AR-15s and like never been fired. You know, we'll sell these to you. Um, no idea at all. So this thing made me think, okay, there's a lot to, there's a lot to, to investigate here about what's happening with this gun trafficking. It's not simply it's the second amendment and you can buy guns. It's like there's, there's there's rules being broken. There's there's abuse of these practices. Um, so I started getting into this and, and, and getting into this. You know, I was hesitant at first getting in such a, um, um, a, a, a big issue in the United States. Or, or I don't want to, you know, an issue that, that, that I come from outside and not want to misrepresent this this issue of the Second Amendment. But God, you know, went on a journey then of of, of four years. Um, into the world of guns in the United States, but also into the gun industry, into the gun factories of, you know, AK-47s in Romania, went to the Kujia factory, which makes AK-47s, tracing these things that end up in gun tins in Mexico through the United States. Talked to people from, you know, the the, the head of the AR-15 owners of America, you know, the the, the uh, Alaska Machine Gun Association to, um, you know, to the, the people who were very, uh, you know, the guys in Baltimore selling guns on the streets, to try and really work out how the black market is operating. Like, what are the laws and rules of the black market in firearms? Um, because in the United States, you've got the legal market of 300, you know, you know, the legal gun owners, you've got 390 million guns in, in, in civilian hands. or uh, But also you have this, this parallel um, illegal market working, which fuels uh, the cartels in Mexico and goes to 150, you know, 150 other countries. And try and figure that out. So that was really kind of the beginning of this journey. Can you define the Iron River? Because I think that's, in terms of a concept, I think that's something that viewers need to understand because it sounds so simplistic, but as you just highlighted, there's so many levels to it. But I think the core definition is something that everyone needs to understand in terms of what's happening, not only throughout the US, but what's trailing to the southern southern border and beyond. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, the the, the the phrase was actually used by some some writers before, and you know, I, I picked it up, but it, it was picked up a lot more after you know I used it in, in his book. Uh, and before people spoke about iron pipeline and iron pipeline inside the United States um, of, of guns, which would go from places like um, Virginia or Georgia to cities like Baltimore, Maryland, where you have different gun laws, so you have gun trafficking with inside the United States. But the Iron River is the guns being trafficked, particularly to Mexico, but also after Mexico going 
on from Mexico because you have guns traced to criminals in Colombia that have come through Mexico. Um, and I, you know, I interviewed a, a guy who's a pilot uh, for the cartels who'd you know fly up from Colombia with cocaine and then fly back there with guns as well as other tequila and riding saddles and other things that they might want down in Colombia they get in Mexico. So the, you get this, this this chain of it happening. But the Iron River is, is is the guns being trafficked from the United States to Mexico. So we're talking about every year estimates of, of more than 200,000 firearms a year. Um, now, they're not going proportionally across the country. They're going you know, massively to, to cartels, armed groups. Um, and you can see uh, you know, cartels in these firefights um, with the Mexicans' army, uh, you know, cartels with – a Barrett 50s firing, bam, 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 and like, you know, hitting hitting these, uh, uh, you know, there's a video there that they find a Barrett 50 and they bang, hit a soldier, his leg blows away. Um, you know, they, 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 this is the, the firepower going down, um, and that's 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 a huge factor. Um, it, you know, it's become now the same time we've got fentanyl coming north. Fentanyl is a bit of a game changer. I mean, I've been, been covering this for 22 years, and fentanyl's been, you know, when I started covering this, it was 15,000 overdose deaths a year in the United States. Now it's like 107,000 a year. You know, it's a game changer there. But we've got this this interchange, guns going south, drugs coming north. So let's get into the cartels a little bit, because I think that's also just a few weeks ago, we had four Americans that were down. There's numerous different reasons why they were supposed to be down there. I've heard everything from a drug deal gone bad to they were misinterpreted as Haitian immigrants, where some of the cartels do take immigrants from deeper in Latin America and force them to essentially become Sicarios. Whatever it might be, three of the Americans were killed, and that caused a lot of outrage back here in the U.S. You had senators like Lindsey Graham trying to push through to label cartel groups as a terrorist organization. And then even just a few months before that, we had El Chapo's son, Avidio Guzman, who was officially arrested, obviously two years back or three years back now, where he originally was arrested and then quickly released after the town of Culiacan was set ablaze, for lack of a better word. And once again, it did happen, but it seemed like the US or the Mexican government was more prepared this time and quickly was able to get him to Mexico City that was everywhere in the US. And I feel like it's one of the first times where people are really starting to take notice on just how powerful these groups are getting. So can you maybe highlight what's happening in the southern border? Because for a lot of people, the story stopped at El Chapo, but you've had the rise of CGNG. You've had, like you're saying, firefights happening where tens of people are dying, where police are being killed, where politicians are being killed. There's so much happening. So can you highlight what's truly happening down south right now and how even as fentanyl has changed the game, how much the game has also changed? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that people are kind of getting uh, aware of this stuff now. Um, whereas, I mean, it's, because I've been kind of in the trenches covering this for years, and, and it's like, so when, when I seen this stuff in, in, in the twenty two thousands, I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. This is this is it's nuts. And and and, and over the years, it was always like, you know, this is. You know, you have you know very heavily armed, um, you know, militias armed groups roaming around um, south the border. You know, you know, America is going to take notice of this stuff. So it kind of takes takes some time for it to really, really can take some years for it to really come in. But it's been been brewing for for the last 
uh, I mean, the roots go back a long time, but really the change um, it's been brewing for the last two decades. Um, to give a, a, a bit, just to, just to uh, uh, verify that it was, it was two Americans were killed and two of them survived of the, of the, uh, of that group in Matamoros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, that thing there with the, with the Americans down there. Uh, but anyway, to give a, to give a bigger picture of what are the, what's happened, I would say in uh, kind of bigger picture on this, bigger perspective on this over the, over these last two decades is that you used to have in Mexico going back to the 20th century, a one party state running Mexico. So it wasn't the Soviet Union that it was. It wasn't you know totalitarian like the Soviet Union, but it was one one party and a power structure running things. And you never really had uh, law and order, a kind of rule of law working like it does in the United States with kind of lawyers going to courts and arguing these cases. It was more a kind of system of power. Uh, power flows you know down like water. And the corruption making it go kind of flows up like gas. That's kind of how how I would see this the, the system of power in Mexico, but the institutional revolutionary party, the PRI, were the ones running this. Um, and you kind of had a pyramid of power where you have the you know, the, the, the top is the president. There, they, they they change the president every six years, so it wasn't like one big dictator. It was you know change it, but it was kind of rigged. You know, you knew the PRI were going to win, um, but they would choose who they're going to have. And then you go down and you have kind of mid-level power brokers and the governors and then, you know, and then you have the kind of what they call caciques, which is like an old word, kind of meaning, almost meaning chief, caciques running these, these parts of the country. And the drug trade happened and it was kind of part of the system. I mean, basically they would tax it. The system would tax it, you know, the, through the uh, corrupt politicians and police chiefs, they would tax, get money from the from drug traffickers. And then they would like run this, control this. Now, when you had this change in 2000 to, to democratic rule, you know, everyone's going to be happy. You've got democracy. And you know, in fact, it was a former Coca-Cola executive took power. Democracy, business, it's all going to, you know, all, all, you know end the history. It's, all, it's all, all good news. When that happened, this control of, of, of the country and of organized crime broke down. And... So then you got different political. Now they didn't become honest, but you got different political parties and different power, and so it became a mix of, of, of power around the around thing, kind of vacuums. And so you got kind of one guy who's mayor of some town for one party, but a different guy for a different party who's governor, a different guy's president. You got federal police, you got military. You know who who's who within this, and at the same time, the cartels are getting more and more money. So they're getting money. You know they had their money from uh, marijuana for a long time. Um, heroin, you know, a long time making a lot of heroin in Mexico, become a big business. Cocaine, which began with the main money going to the Colombians, but the Mexicans took over that business of cocaine. So they ended up just buying it from the Colombians and selling it in America and making the big profits. And then more recently, crystal meth, big money, the, 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 getting into the uh, synthetic drugs, crystal meth, and then finally end of the line fentanyl, kind of worst of all. So this money is pumping into these organizations. And at the same time, the, the, the kind of governmental power structure is weakening. And these, these organizations are getting all the guns they want from the United States and starting to really buy, you know, huge amounts. Iron Rivers going in to arm these guys. So these guys create paramilitary organizations. So they transform from being, I mean, you look at the old days where you had like gang members 
Uh, I mean, uh, going to California, you had they used to recruit gang members in California, uh, San Diego. Gang members in San Diego go down there, guys with shaved heads, tattoos, cholos, they called them, go down there with pistols and, you know, getting these, you know, you know that that, that ended. Um, you had paramilitary, ex-military, uh, ex-military guys, ex-Mexican military, ex-US military, ex-Guatemalan, Colombian military, basically people, or, 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 or criminals well, they would train them in, in military tactics, paramilitary tactics. And they armed them like militaries organized like paramilitary squads. So you got radios, um, you know, control systems, you know, you got like um bulletproof jackets, metal helmets, AK-47s, grenades. We can get into some of that, how they get, you know, grenade uh, fragmentation grenades, RPG sevens, as well as the Barrett fifties and all that kind of stuff. And start organizing like paramilitary organizations. Um now they're working with the politicians and they start to, to kind of change the relationship. So instead of the politicians ordering them, they start to order the politicians around. They start to tell the local mayor, um, you got to work for us. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. And you've got to pay us 10% of your budget. So instead of like, we're going to bribe you, it's like, you've got to pay 10% of your city budget. It's got to go to us. We run this. this is, we run this place. Um, and then they, you know, they're getting all the drug money, but they're also like, okay, we're going to do uh, kidnapping. Then we'll do shakedowns. Then we're going to steal oil from, you know, we're going to steal a billion dollars worth of oil. Um, so it's kind of real uh, gangster capitalism, uh, paramilitary, uh, gangster warlords, is, is, is my second book, um, in parts of Mexico. Now, it's weird because it's not the same as um, in, in, in uh, say, People, when, when they talk about it, and, and they talk about this in Congress and stuff now, talk about this, they're, they're trying to make sense of what's happening. Uh, and sometimes their language is confused. They say like things like, oh, well, a certain percentage of, America, of Mexico is c- controlled by cartels. But it's not the same as, say, the Islamic State controlling a territory. The Islamic State controls a territory. They've got complete control. Um, and also they care about things like educating um, you know, children. They want Islamic education. They can, they're concerned about the culture and that kind of thing. Same when you have communist groups, the Shining Path uh, in Peru, take uh, take some of it. They want to, you know, they want to change people's thinking. The cartels, first, their control is not absolute. They, they control certain elements, so they control the territory. They'll be happy for the government to to provide electricity. They'll be happy for the government to send in school teachers. They don't care what the kids are taught in school. Um, you know, they want some kids. It helps if for them if kids know how to read and write because they want to have them working for them. Um. You know, they, they want the government to come and collect, collect the garbage, but they want to control and monopolize violence and various rackets of making money. So you see this, the structures, you go into these territories and you see kids, you know, with radios and kids with, you know, with phones controlling and, 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 you know, the lookouts. And then you see these, these structures there. Um, and that's, you know, basically it becomes like an endemic armed conflict, endemic kind of meaning ongoing and it's kind of caught in its own logic. Um, these groups are fighting each other um, and fighting inside, each, you know, for, for control of territories um, and terrorizing, um, you know, journalists, uh, media, sorry, journalists, politicians, uh, poli- you know, putting pressure on the state, sometimes fighting elements of the state. So you've got this kind of endemic armed conflict continuing. It's driving um, and it's a reason for people going to the southern border and claiming political asylum. Not every single case is valid fleeing guns, but many of these cases are. People have strong cases, and that's a whole nother 
issue in the United States and you've got 1.6 million people right now on a waiting list asking for asylum, political asylum in the United States, from mostly from Latin America, Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Venezuela. Um, so that's the kind of situation. Um, and, you know, in the case like in, in, in Matamoros, um, over from Brownsville, these Americans went in. Um, you know, some of them had a history with drugs, but they went in uh, supposedly for a liposuction operation. This woman and just drove right into the middle of these uh, one of these shootouts. And so, how ingrained are these cartels with politicians, political parties, and even states? Like, obviously, the Sinaloa cartel, notorious Sinaloa, that's there. You know, when you go to a lot of the cities, Culiacan's one of the ones like very highlighted for El Chapo. It's the people there almost defend them as if as if they are you know not only their own, but they have. Uh, I don't even know the word for it, but they're, they're looked at in, in a lot of ways as, you know, angelic figures and in very interesting ways and in ways people I don't think would even expect. How ingrained are these cartels with politicians? Is it, is it kind of overplayed in terms of how corrupt it actually is? Cause you hear rumors that it goes all the way to the top or is it truly that corrupt? Is there political parties, states, whatever it might be that are quote unquote aligned with some of these cartels? Yeah, so so you, you kind of brought two issues. So the first issue about political corruption, it's as bad as they say. Um, it is. Um, sometimes I think over my reporting over the years, I was initially naive. It's hard to gauge, you know, because I, I, I interviewed these guys and, and, and I interviewed these, and I've interviewed uh, um, the uh, Vicente Fox, Felipe Calderon, uh, Mexican presidents. Um, I've interviewed, um, you know, high, this high-ranking head of the entire country's police force. Interviewed generals and down to low, and, you know, and you're with them, and they look convincing. And you, they're like, wow, maybe this guy's honest after all. They're not as bad as they say. And then you kind of see the, there's this court case which happened in uh, in January uh, this year, and this uh, ex head of police who I interviewed many years ago was was convicted of, of drug trafficking, and, and the stories were crazy. I mean. One of the craziest stories, I think, there, of, or a couple of crazy stories of his corruption, which perhaps you can call state capture or, or capture of elements of the state by criminal, criminal, you know, organized crime. Uh, one of the craziest stories was this guy um, who described how an, there was the biggest ever cocaine seizure in the world in 2007. Covered this back in the day. 23 tons of cocaine. Uh, they burned it on a bonfire. Big New York Times story about it. They burned it on a bonfire. You know, have brass bands playing and military saluting. 23 tons of cocaine. Now worth billions of dollars on the street. This guy in the court said, no, they didn't really burn the cocaine. This guy helped us get the cocaine back. And we changed it for false cocaine. We like knocked up some false cocaine. Cocaine comes in kilo bricks. So we knocked up some false cocaine <laughs> Um, got some some flour and sugar and shit, and just made this, you know, fake cocaine, and that's what they burned. So simulation, you know, you know you're you, you're not, you know, it's the simulation of what you're seeing is not the reality of what you're seeing. Um, and that's that's kind of narco state level stuff. Uh, another another one is uh, um, there's, there's a there was a police officer in the state of Michoacan, in the state police, who had the nickname Tyson. Because uh, he was kind of stocky guy with a, with a thick neck, used to be like friendly to local journalists. You know, oh yeah, Tyson, ah, come on, that's how you doing, you know, Tyson. He was uh, eventually arrested 
uh, and came out and he gave a confession on TV. That's how they made him give confessions on TV. And he described how he was a ranking cartel member um, who would not only commit murders for the cartel and organize police and, and give police cars to the cartel and use them. He would also uh, be involved in bloodying the recruits. So they recruit young guys into the cartel. And they want to get, you know, you get a young 17, 16, 17-year-old kid into the cartel, okay, you know, this guy's got to work for us. He's got to serve. He's got to, he's got to you know, be useful. You can't have him at a moment be scared. So we've got to, so you get these young kids to make them cut up bodies, chop up bodies and stuff of victims to get them blooded. Um, Cause you got to make them lose their sense, lose their humanity um, to fight in, in these wars. Um, and again, I mean, that's a, that's a state police commander. Um, so, so yeah, it's as bad as they say. Um, now I, I would say, I would add just a kind of footnote to that. When I say it's that bad, it's almost like, damn, this whole state's got to go. You know, what do we do with that? If, if a state's that rotten, what do you do with it? Now, I don't quite see that in the weird, you know, Mexican. If you think about the state or, or conceptually a state, perhaps like a forest of, of different trees. So you've got, you know, areas like the military or the police, but then also you've got things like the health service. You've got the, 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 the school teachers. Um, you've got, um, you know, the electricity. Um, so parts of the state are still functioning okay and are not, you know, involved in the marketing and parts of them are totally corrupt. So if you think about these different trees and then they've got like this rotten, venomous plant wrapped around certain trees um, now, and it gets to the point around certain trees where it's kind of this, this plant is really embedded into changing nutrients with these trees. So you can't even really see where the state begins uh, and the crime stops. It's just like one, you know, one thing. And these, you know, cops, you know, <laughs> cops and criminals, they're literally the same thing. But, you know, is it going to be any good to try and burn, set fire to the whole forest? You know, if you set fire to the whole forest to try and burn it down, is that going to be like, um, oh, you know about wildfires from California? <laughs> Very much is so. Is that going to really make, make things better? You set fire to the whole forest, you know, then then it, like, we end up putting it out halfway through and we still got it. It's like, or we've got to try and, you know, how do you try and remove that rot from certain trees or, you know, maybe chop down a couple of trees. Um, so, so, so that's one thing, the state. Um, the second thing is you mentioned was the population, the communities, the people. So I would say that's mixed, very mixed. Um, you know, Mexico is a big country of 100, 130 million people. This is not all of the country. It's certain areas where the cartels are very, very strong, certain areas where they're mediumly strong and certain areas where they're not really an issue. Um, if you look at the areas where they're very strong, um, then you, you certainly do have a support base for the for the cartels, and they deliberately cultivate this. Um, you know, you, you saw during the you know, early COVID when everything was locked down, and they went to these communities and started handing out goodie bags. I went to one of the places where people were receiving these goodie bags, plastic uh, bags with um, you know sugar and eggs, and, and these people saying, "Oh!" And they gave us. It wasn't only cheap eggs and sugar they gave us there was good quality you know proper you know brand name sugar <laughs> they were giving us um it's not even that many people who really receive it but it, it's in it they, they video it they put it out on the me social media so like, you know we're the good guys we're giving back to our communities you know the same thing you'll get that in uh you know um there's a, there's a children's day in mexico that give out presents to poor kids so again you know you're winning hearts and minds um uh they'll uh um so, so you get that then also you know 
you get the, 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 the narco culture, which is a whole thing of songs. They'll pay musicians to sing songs about them. You know, part of that because it's, it's a weird culture. These, when you get into it, these are pretty good. Um, these are pretty good songs, pretty good bands. Um, you know, I, you know, talk to some of these guys, and they get paid like forty thousand dollars to write a song about some drug trafficker. Um, play, they play at their party. Sometimes a hundred thousand dollars. It's crazy world. Um, but so that's a way as well. They kind of, kind of really got uh, 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 their their things on the culture, and that culture is very popular. Um. Uh, and you get, you know, some people who are paid or, or, or getting money from them who, you know, they'll move people on the streets. It's mostly mostly them really moving it who like, you know, who take to the streets suddenly to demonstrate. Um, uh, and really these are cartel organized demonstrations. They'll use the same tactics of um, in, in, in Mexico, the kind of left wing um, activists um, of, of marching, blockading roads, uh, burning trucks. Um, and they, they kind of use it and pretend it's some kind of, sometimes pretend it's like an anti-military demonstration, but really it's like cartel orchestrated. So they use some of these techniques as well. Um, now, as well as that, in the community, there's many people who are, who hate these cartels, um, who who have had children who have been killed by them, who have disappeared, who really don't like living. Uh, I mean, if you can imagine in the community where you grew up uh, and think about the kind of most violent people there, the kind of the, the kind of worst thugs in your community, you know. Everyone's got one. I grew up in a small town in England, but we had you know, a couple of couple of local thugs, you know, kind of hooligans, you know, thugs who who would like rob houses and you know start fights, and you know, you people would be scared of a couple of guys. But they haven't really got some big status in you know in, in in this big community. Imagine those guys are the guys running the town. <laughs> you know, like you know, those guys are in charge. <laughs> you know. It's not all the case because sometimes, I mean, and I've talked to some of these uh, leaders of these cartels, and they're not only thugs, to be fair. I mean, some of them, they're very clever as well, and they're charismatic guys, and they're guys who know how to talk because to control people, it's kind of a political thing as well. You're, 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 how do you control people? But you've got a lot of power to, like, thugs, you know, down on the streets. Uh, I mean, you know, if you're in a, you know, in, a, in one of these places like Sinaloa, you know, I had a friend there, he, he had, like, banged into a car. You know, or, or the car kind of banged into him. One of these like incidents, the guy suddenly comes out of the car. You know, it's complete narco. So he says, "Oh, I want, um, I want five thousand dollars right now." No, no, give me the money right now. I haven't got it. Let's go to your house. So suddenly he gets to go to his house. He's living with his parents, and his guys going in with guns, trying to get him the money. So, so that that's what you have to live with on a daily basis, living around these. There's, you know, there's just thousands of incidents like that you can describe. So, uh. Many people against them now. You've had, you know, worse practices. That's kind of that's the kind of lightweight things, the worst stuff. Where you had cartels, they vary in how predatory they are. One of the more predatory ones was was known as the Knights Templar. Kind of bizarre name, taking the name from the from these the Caballeros Templarios, this name of these crusading knights. Um, now, they began to say when they rose. This is early, early 2010s. They really got to their their zenith, maybe about 2013. But they would uh, go to – everyone starts saying, okay, everyone's got to pay us money. Um, you're making tortillas. You've got to pay us uh, a, a money and all of the – you know, if you sell your tortillas for 15 pesos a kilo, you've got to pay us two pesos. Um, you're um, – you know, oh, you, oh you're, you're having a party. Are you? You've got to pay us money. So you shake downs for everything. You, you're growing limes, cultivating limes. Pay us some money. I thought we'll take over the lime cooperative and we'll set the prices of limes. We're giving us our own, our own pay. Um, and they started saying, 
Uh, oh, right. I see you're, uh, you've got a nice-looking daughter. Uh, we're going to take her with us for a ride. She'll come back in a few days, pregnant. You know, that, that, that's the kind of really abusive. And if, if you look at this one guy called Dr. Marelis, who's one of the guys who rebelled against them with his own suspect history. But anyway, Dr. Marelis, he, he described this. You know, he was a doctor. And so he was, you know, all these girls coming in pregnant and they've been, they've been raped. That was a point. People don't like, and people are sensitive talking about this because it was it was not only the issue of rape, the humiliation, but that was the point. These guys are like, so we get back to guns. They're like, we're going to take up guns against the cartel. So we're forming our own militia. So they, they, they kind of met together in secret and then they, they announced up and then they created this big militia movement known as Alta Defensas, self-defense squads against the cartels, led to a big kind of trench warfare that happened over 2014 in Michoacan, still going on really. Now the problem for that, and one of the reasons why, again, I'll be hesitant to saying that's a solution, because I'm sure some people will hear that and go, well, gun, gun's a solution. Give, you've got to give the good guys guns. The problem why that didn't work out is you ended up with these same self-defense squads becoming the new cartel. Suddenly they're controlling towns, disappearing people, trafficking drugs, doing the same stuff. So it's like, how do you create a police force that can really can really work, um, you know, which is really responsive to people. These are tough things. Um, these, are, these are tough questions. I mean, I think about guns in self defense and, and and living here. Having when you really deal with this stuff, as I as I, I go around um, the country and deal with, with with heavily armed guys, I could carry a gun. It wouldn't be any good for my safety. In fact, it'd be more of a liability. Because when I'm dealing with, you know, sometimes, you know, like a dozen guys with AK-47s, if I have a, if I have a handgun, it's no good. I don't bring security with me because it's no good bringing some unarmed security. I mean, a lot of these uh, TV companies are like, oh, we've got to send security. It's like, these security guys aren't going to, what are they going to do? They're already more of a liability. You have some ex-military guy, just they, it looks worse. Um, if I have 12 guys with AK-47s, that's protection. And then sometimes I'll go to play. I mean, one time I was, I was going to a place in Michoacan State, and I, and I talked to one of these local guys who's currently in prison in Florida, um, but he was kind of the, the local chief. And I said, I wanted to look at some of these mines. And he actually gave me about 15 guys because I was, you know, like bring them. Here's 15 guys in, in a couple of trucks and they can take you around and show you. I've gone to the place with a local police and said, can, can you help give us some backup? We're going to go to this place. I went to a place. It was a um, where they had, where they'd melted uh, the bodies, dissolved the bodies of more than 250 people. In, in metal barrels, um, a state called Coahuila, horrific story. I went there with a colleague. We went there. They still had the metal barrels. They still had the, like, uh, you could still see, like, plastic, um, um, you know, things of car acid and, you know, different battery acid, different stuff they'd use to make these mixtures. Went there, and we asked for backup, and they sent us a, a bunch of the, a whole convoy of these, these very heavily armed state police. I mean, the, the same, the same stories are, you know, are corrupt and stuff. But in that particular case, they're with us, giving us some backup to do this. So, so the issue again is like um, me having a gun is not going to defend myself um, against this stuff. It's like, how do you really um, kind of see power, uh, gun power, firepower in a state where where you do get a, 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 a state collapsing or, or, or becoming completely corrupt? Um, and how do you see that? And I would argue that in the United States, the reason really that criminals are kept in check in the United States um, 
I'm very open to this discussion. I mean, I'm always learning. I could be you know, wrong about all this stuff. But the reason I believe that criminals are kept in check in the United States in a big way is because the United States it has paradoxes that it has very, very powerful law enforcement historically. It's getting weakened the last couple of years, but historically um, the U.S. Has, has, has hit organized crime gangs hard. So they haven't grown in power like they have here. And that's really what stops um, some gangsters with guns, you know, kicking, kicking down your door and, and, and going taking somebody. So I think for – I follow the narco culture pretty in depth. And I think one of the things people – always highlight is when the Mexican Marines are coming, that means you're pretty much fucked. Um, whoever it might be, you know, what, whether you're a high ranking narco official or if you're a low level Sicario. But I think this brings us back to, I think you're fully correct. I think having the heavily, not heavily armed, but closer to militarized police does help mitigate crime. But when we look at the perspective in Mexico, we highlight the Mexican Marines, but there's a lot of questions a lot of times too, that, and this brings us back to almost the corruption conversation is that they are the power player. They are the ones that were like, they're going to shut down the groups. However, when corruption gets involved, there's questions. I know this is pretty popularized. Maybe you could speak to this a little bit where uh, there was murmurs that the government took Sinaloa side in their conflict with the Zetas. So doesn't that also kind of create that dynamic there too, where we have to look into how are we going to be able to foolproof, you know, these type of government entities because getting the Marines well armed and, you know, ready to take on whatever situation might be in front of them is one thing. Getting them willing to, you know, fully get rid of all the cartels or not side with one, as the example with Sinaloa, is a whole nother. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, no, absolutely. I mean, we're wrong. I mean, I mean, absolutely. The the uh, there was, I mean, huge corruption and, and, and times where the the government or elements again, you got you got a you got a uh, the government itself now is a, is a many headed beast. Um, but you had large elements of federal forces taking the side of the Sinaloa cartel against Setas against the um, Juarez cartel. Um, so then sometimes as well, what you get is you get different elements of the state working with different cartels. In the early days, uh, back in the 2000s, I was uh, uh, covering a shootout between uh, the, the local city police and the federal police. Having a, but the reason is we're having a shootout because they're working with different cartels. So they're fighting, oh, you know, you got it. And so they, it's literal kind of crazy stuff there. Um, uh, you know, absolutely, like there, there, there was elements with the Marines, which then helped up back the Jalisco cartel originally at one, one time. Uh, the Setas uh, kidnapped six Marines. They set them up. In, in the state of Veracruz, um, and they invited them. They were working with local police, and they said, uh, "Come out for a drink in the evening." Locals were working. Oh, they come out, come out for a drink with these local cops they're working with. Didn't have their, all their gear with them, the guns. Walk into a bar, said us are there. Kidnapped him, tortured him, and on video and murdered them. I mean, the Sedas were like beyond the pale. They were kind of, they were kind of, the, 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 they, were, they, were, they were like, even with inside the craziness, they were like the beyond the pale crazies. Um, so then the Marines after that were like, fuck these guys. You know, we're going we're gonna to fucking kill Sedas. You know, we ain't going to fuck anymore. You know, we got, we got, imagine, imagine the American Marines. If you had six of your, your guys being kidnapped and murdered or, or like, you know, be like, fuck it, we're, gonna, we're just going to kill them. So they start going out, bang, 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 bang. We're going to kill people wherever, you know, wherever. Now, when you start doing that, 
are you necessarily killing the bad guys? Then you start like grabbing some kid. Is he really part of them? But also, even if he is part of them, I mean, this, this happens. This happens. It's a big incident recently. You find some of these guys; they are bad guys. But then you go in there and like bang, 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 we're killing them there as well without without we got the guns down. Because we, you know, what are the rules of engagement in this situation? They're not really not clear. So then, then everyone's like, so this then this becomes the story. And it's right, you can't really have a military going around just murdering people. I mean, if it was my kid and, and the military just kill him, and it's like, oh. but then again, sometimes they're killing bad guys, but they're killing bad guys without, you know, when their guns are down. Um, now, worse than that still, um, I was in the, the, the and this is, this is sensitive stuff, but I was in, this, in the port of Mantanillo, biggest Pacific, biggest port in Mexico, faces China, three million containers coming through that a year. Oh run by the Marines right now. Fentanyl's coming through there. Bribes are being paid. Um, you know, so there's a lot of money and drugs. And we saw a video of Guzman re- arrested recently too. And I was surprised that he was arrested, apprehended, and how quickly they moved him to Mexico City. I remember, obviously, like I said, Culiacan was on fire once again. And they were doing everything they could to, you know, bail him out and basically put him in the same situation they were in in 2019. What do you think that was about as well? Because like we said, there's interconnectivity within the government and these cartels and CJNG is one a lot of people highlight as the rising power and their brutality is something crazy to say the least. But then also you still have people in the background like Omiles Zambada there's a lot of power players. So what do you think happened there? Yeah. So, so when we talk again about this, this, this power, and a lot of this, I guess uh, it's very interesting. We talk about this now It's kind of understanding is a kind of power conflict really to make sense of this in, in a basic sense. So the cartels, you get like this, the state becomes, the state is more powerful in the 20th century. It's corrupt, but it's more powerful. The state becomes weakened and the cartels rise and become a power that clearly threatens the state. In terms of you know, in terms of power, but a state is corrupt, and so you've got you know rotten elements of the state, and the cartels work with it. If we look at 2019, the first attempt to arrest Obidio Guzman. So 2019, um, they go in there. They they, they have about about a hundred soldiers and police going for this takedown of Obidio Guzman. They go in to take him out. They they set up perimeters round around the building and the gunmen react very, very fast and immediately are engaged. So you, you could try to, they try to set up a perimeter around the house where they're arresting him and the gunmen are engaging and fighting with them around the perimeter. It escalates and very quickly, this shows how, again, I mean, how, you know, these cartels, you can't help but admire how, how incredible they are as organizations and what they can do with this stuff. They get more than 700 gunmen to the streets within a couple of hours onto the streets fighting. I mean, any guerrilla group in the world, any insurgent group would be pretty envious of that. I mean, bang. And these guys, this is happening, bang, you know, right? The way, you, know, you look at the way they organize, they, they, got, they have different crews, different guys, like I'm in charge of six guys with my you know, particular vehicle. Um, I get my guys and they've got a guy above me and bang, and, brrm, and they're like, got these guys on the streets. The military get like 350 soldiers onto the streets. So they're outnumbering the military about two to one. 
the police <laughs> simply melt away. State of this, you know. I mean, again, this is fighting, and they're fighting again with 50 cows and, and, and grenades and all this kind of stuff. The civilian population are like, whew, you know, they're just, they're, 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 people keep picking up their kids from school and they're like, lock the school, you know, all the, all the parents inside the school, lock the school. People in supermarkets, you know, buying, you know, and just like, look, they, they stay, they're staying there for, for, for like the next 12 hours. So the military, and this happened, the situation's crazy. Then also they start kidnapping. There's certain soldiers who are moving around and they're like, got them. They, they start going to the, the, the quarters where the families of the, of, the, of the military are living. Start going in there. So then you've got the family, the military, and, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, the, the kids and, and wives, you know, we're going to take out them. So a few hours afterwards, you know, and there's corruption involved as well, but a few hours afterwards, the Mexican federal government says, release release Obidio. Release him. Release him. Stand down. We won. I wrote actually a story then um, for Time magazine, and I said how, how the Sinaloa cartel defeated the Mexican army. Uh, and, and, I, and I was playing it a bit, but, like, you know, that was, you know, there was – Humiliation for the military. A lot of military were ang- elements of the military were very angry about that because they were like, well, actually, we, we were actually winning this on the street, but then our, you know, the commanders in chief made us step down." Same that the American military said the same stuff in Vietnam, but like you know, they're, they're kind of so. You know, this happens, and and the, the Mexican military now, like afterwards, you have different things playing out. The Mexican president gets close to the military. The military is getting reinforced. It's getting way more money. It takes over a new force called the National Guard. Meant to be a civilian force, then it gets completely controlled by the military. Which is basically soldiers or, or paramilitary police on the streets. Now they're still corrupt, as I was saying. So it's not really about, I think, about good or bad. They're still corrupt, but they're like, we're beginning to be the, a real power now. And we've got to make up, remove that stain of being defeated by Sinaloa Cartel. So we're going to go in there again and take out Obidigo's man and make it do it properly. So this time in January, the Mexican president as well is down with this. He's like, that is a bad state of my presidency. So they go in there. This time they've got 3,500 soldiers. So 10 times as many. This time they don't do it in the, you know, they don't arrest him at like midday. They arrest him like in the early hours in the morning. They go down there, they go into a town, shoot up a bunch of people, you know, bang, 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 bang. A lot of deaths there, a lot of civilian deaths. And they take him out, and then they're very, very quickly flying back to Mexico City. Now, when they're flying back, the people, the government, even go to the airport and start firing on the on the planes. And there's like images of civilian, you know, passenger planes, and people are like running, you know, getting under the seats, and they're hearing gunfire coming at their plane before it takes off. But they take him out. Now, it's a way of the government saying, "Well, we're the ones who are in charge of this." It's reinforcing and going back to the 20th century state. Now, if we look at some other countries in Latin America, we can look at this, the case of Bukele in El Salvador, if you're familiar with that at all. Uh, I mean, Bukele has, I was down there in December. Bukele, it's a very different situation um, in terms of the gangs. They're, they're nowhere as powerful as the cartels. But he basically decimated the gangs by putting, um, he put in, um, of the entire population of El Salvador, he, he put like within um, within a nine month period, he put like sixty five thousand people in prison. It's like you know more than one percent of the population 
in prison within within nine months, as well as already you've got another one percent of the population. So it'd be like in the United States, kind of rounding up three million people, incarcerating three million people in in a nine month period, putting them in mass crowded jails with basically any accusation. But like he decimated the gangs and people, the population, you know, really support him. Got mass support. He's got like you know ninety percent approval. Um, so are we going to see in Latin America more authoritarian governments in the future? Is a reaction to very very violent crime. And again, I don't in any way relish that. Um, but it's analysing this and thinking what's likely going to happen and what are the options here. Um, and likely whatever's said, if when you have that kind of threat to the state, the state naturally ends up reinforcing becoming powerful. Then you deal with the problem of an authoritarian state. And how do you deal with that? So so can we try and, and reduce the problems of an authoritarian state while accepting you need some kind of serious law enforcement? You can't really have um, this level of criminality. Um, you know, it's, you know, in, in the long term, countries aren't, aren't going to live with this. Why haven't we seen that type of reaction in Mexico? Because I think I've seen countless comments on this where people are saying at any time they could go in, you know, after a video was arrested, they're like, anytime they could go in, they know where Zambada is. They know where Mencho is. They know where these, you know, key players are. They can stop them anytime, but they don't. Is it economically? Because I understand a majority of the money that comes in is, you know, a massive fuel for the Mexico's economy. Like, what are the reasons that you don't see any calls for that in Mexico in the same way as you just highlighted in El Salvador, something that they could realistically quickly switch to and honestly probably be able to minimize the problem greatly within, you know, a few years? Well, I think you you have seen in a very different way this kind of, again, this, this kind of remilitarizing of the state in Mexico. So this has gradually happened. They kind of gradually, uh, really in the last three presidents, it's kind of gradually going in this direction. So you've seen... I mean, now you're seeing a growth of a, milita- a military uh, industrial complex and kind of controlling the streets in Mexico. So we're, we're gradually seeing that. Um, now it's not they're, – they're, they're still corrupt and working with, you know, working with drugs, and, and it's very, very sensitive there. But, like, we are seeing that now. We, one thing about I – mean, I mean, maybe in the future we will see a, a kind of president who will come in and just say, we've got to fight crime – we're going to kill all of these people, and we're going to we're going to forget about you know it's, the, the rhetoric of El Salvador is 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 they're terrorists. We're not talking about criminal, talking about terrorists. They're all terrorists, um, and we're going to you know use the we're going to there's no mercy for terrorists. And if you in the United Nations and Human Rights Watch criticize us, you know you're you're foreign idiot liberals who don't understand our problems. Um, you know if you and this is what. President of El Salvador, you know, he says, if you want these criminals, we'll give them to you. Okay, you can have them if you want. Um, this is what we're going to have to do to deal with them. Now, and you say it's brutal. I mean, I've been down and it's, I mean, it's tough. I mean, what this really means in practice on the streets is, you know, you, you got a house, you know, I heard this story dozens of times. You got a house there, you got a woman there with an 18 year old kid knock on the door. Oh, hello. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to come. Uh, your son's got to come in for a few checks. Oh, but he's under, no, it's, don't worry about it. He's going to come in for a few checks to the station and he'll be back here in a couple of hours. Okay. 
take him down the station, bang, he's gone in the system. No contact with him. He's been in prison for months. Uh, you know, um, he's uh, got the um, uh, like this very standard charge of kind of like um, gang affiliation, or not even you know gang connections. Bang, he's in that. He's on that, and and they're in the system, and they're in a very crowded prison. And, and, they're, and they're. now in Mexico, the difference in Mexico is is in El Salvador, you got a small country, you know, six seven million people. And you have um, the gangs with with less guns, less firepower than in Mexico. You know, a lot of them more have more like pistols. Some of them have like long arms. Stuff. Um, not really. And they went in very, very fast. And bang, you know, all of these guys are locked up. The first wave locked up, and then carried on, carried on very, very high. In Mexico, much bigger country, 130 million people, two million square kilometers. Um. A dozen cartels, you know, the, the 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 big ones, the medium ones, and then the lower ones, and then a whole bunch of more cartelitos, they call them like smaller organizations around the country, but also with a whole bunch of firepower. Um, and you saw this under Felipe Calderon, where there was corruption involved, but also Felipe Calderon was trying to kind of reimpose the state, the president Felipe Calderon, 2006-2012. But you saw this, the military would go to Michoacan, now, if you look at if you get into military doctrine and counterinsurgency, then you say the problem is with fighting guerrilla organizations and the cartels, when they're confronted by a big bunch of military, they can melt back and become like guerrillas. When the military are not there, they can come out and be like paramilitaries and, and, and be like, uh, you know, we're running this and we're driving through towns, showing off our guns, and we're just like, you know, we're the ones running this. When you get a big military uh, build up in a place, they can melt away and become like guerrillas. And then they can ambush and kill soldiers and kidnap and, and, and do these kind of things, harass them. But they melt away, which means you can have a military there and then these guys can go to the hills and then the military can leave and then come back again. So they say to try and fight, and this gets to kind of counterinsurgency doctrine, you have to control every square mile of territory. So you need huge numbers of troops. They don't really have them in, in Mexico to do that. Uh, and the problem is you start doing one state, you start doing Michoacán, and it's all kicking off in Tamaulipas and Sierra Juarez and Durango and Tijuana, and then you could go to those. And it, so, you know, in Mexico, I mean, maybe one thing they'd have to kind of pacify the country block by block um, or, or see a kind of gradual pushback, but it, but that kind of extreme and stream kind of um, thing, or, or they, you know, maybe we will see it one day. I'm not saying it necessarily would work. It's like it's a very tough problem in Mexico. I think one of the most famous, I actually, I don't know the quote verbatim, but it was highlighted um, early on where you had the original um, narco pimp. Why am I blinking on his name right now? The the Godfather. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 like. Um, uh, uh, Guadalajara cartel. I don't know. Um, um, Amado, uh, the, um, yeah, yeah, they're the very, someone myself, I'm suddenly I'm someone tired myself as well. It's um, Miguel Felix Gallardo. Miguel Ana Felix Gallardo. There we go. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I just blanked on that. But one of, when he was arrested, obviously Mexico was quote unquote maybe a little bit more tame in terms of the violence you saw. And then a famous 
phrase that kind of came from him was that the lines have been released. Like you don't know, you no longer have anybody there to control them. Could you look at it from a perspective as well? Because as you're saying, it's such a difficult problem to deal with when you have 2 million square miles you're dealing with, you have 130 million people and going block to block isn't, you know, that's not something that when you have 130 million people is easy to say, this is what we're going to do. Do you maybe look at it as beneficial as some of these governments consider focusing on other cartel groups and letting one power play arise? That's, and I'd love to get into your conversation a little bit more with Calderon because I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the book. But, um, you know, there's rumors about him partnering with Sinaloa, trying to allow them to bring control, quote unquote, to the drug game. Do you look at that as, as an out that Mexico would consider as well? So that, I think that's something they've basically been trying to reimpose as well in recent years, and it hasn't worked. Um, this is basically how things functioned, you know, again, and, and going back to Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, um, who, who ran the first, or known as the Guadalajara cartel, or the first kind of big cartel in Mexico. So the idea you have... Um, a, a powerful cartel which can control and reduce violence. Now, this has worked in areas for a certain time, and 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 you saw the Mexican president say this about Sinaloa. Oh, Sinaloa, we've got violence has gone down. We've got one powerful cartel. You know, he's the current president said this about it. If you look in um, Brazil, in a place called in in the in the city of Sao Paulo, in the state of Sao Paulo, you've got one major crime organization there known as the first commander of the capital, um, they really controlled and reduced violence, and it kind of works. However, they're also, then, you know, they, they, then they had a beef with the government one time, and then they shut down the city and started shooting loads of policemen and burning banks and shutting everything down because they're that powerful. So you have one very, very powerful cartel. They can confront the state, but they can also tell the state, well, we can kind of calm things down. So in a, in a way, you're kind of choosing between do you want um, a cancerous tumor or do you want to have HIV? It's like which of these two kind of you know two kind of shitty options. Even saying that, within Mexico, they kind of tried that, and it's not really. They kind of tried to reimpose that in in various uh, places the last few years, and it hasn't hasn't worked. Um, why is it not working in Mexico now? You got too many players, so you already now the cartels are too fragmented in many places. State of Guerrero is maybe the worst in terms of cartel fragmentation, where you have a dozen different groups and these cartelitos and these new groups, you know, Los Tlacos, you know, some of these new group, Los Tequileros, you know, these new groups appearing. Um, I had some friends down there, they were covering these, this one group, some some kid in his early 20s, El Huero Palaya, um, and he had like, you know, some kids, he had like 200 kids, literally kids. I mean, he had, he had you know, like teenagers, but even there's kids as young as 12, like following around, blocking the roads. You know, and there's like you know, hundreds of these kids around with AKs. And, you know, this friend of mine was up there and they, they, were, they were going to cover some of these things. Seven journalists took away their vehicles. And he said, like, the kids came up to them, like guns in their faces, took away their vehicles, took away their cameras. Took away their laptops, took away their you know their IDs and their wallets and stuff. And he was saying, so you know, one kid was like twelve, and the, and the kid who was like a gun to his head was like, God, I could, I could, I could take 
the gun out of this guy's hand, you know, but it's not really going to be a good idea. Um, so you get the kind of fragmented, these are kind of the fragments of the fragments of the fragments. They're kind of taken down the big kingpin and his lieutenant was being controlled. They took him out and then, you know, they end up with these kind of, you know, where of Balaya and his 200 psychopathic kids he's got behind him, um, controlling some chunk of road in, 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 you know, in, in countryside of Mexico. Um, so you've got all these different players around. Um, and, you know, they haven't really got to, you know, so you, you go and talk to somebody, I will, you know, you, 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 you've got the plaza here, you've got to control, but then there are other people challenging them still. So they haven't been able to do that or kind of reimpose that. In certain places, they get it, you know, certain cities, and there'll be like, you know, deals made. Ciudad Juarez, the, the worst uh, the worst front of all the different fights in Mexico over the last 20 years, Ciudad Juarez, 10,000 dead between 2008 and 2011, 10,000 dead in that city. Eventually, it ended up with a peace deal. The Juarez cartel uh, has one section of the city, the Sinaloa cartel has another section. Big road between divides them. So kind of government-backed police deal at the time. Okay, we'll kind of just, just, you know, stop killing each other. <laughs> Who, who's there left to kill now? You kill 10,000 people. Just put your guns down for a bit and, you know, you you, you know you guys can make some money. They kind of do that. But in in the long term, it's still unstable. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, it may be, uh, you know, it can work and, and it has, has worked. Um, and that's kind of getting back to truces made as well, kind of government truces with certain things. It can definitely work in the short term, but it's still a problem in the long term. Now, what Bukele did in El Salvador, likely, was he made a truce with the gangs, revived the truce with the gangs, to say, stop killing each other, you've got your territories. And I rebuild the military, and then he turned on them and put them all in prison. So maybe that again, we're going to get that, so maybe solutions to some of this. But uh, again, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean the, this, this stuff... A lot of what I've done or, or the work, I, I see, see it. I mean, when I was, when I, you know, a few years ago, I kind of felt I had solutions. And now I'm, I, the more I've, I've worked and reported on this, and maybe the less I kind of see clear solutions to it. Um, I mean, bigger stuff. I mean, we can talk about drug policy reform, which is, a, which is a, you know, trying to reduce the money going to them. Um, we can talk about how you revive the neighborhoods and change the, the reality of these neighborhoods so kids don't get recruited into cartels and how you build real police forces. And I kind of still have those three kind of spheres, but these are really hard long-term goals to do this. I agree with that. I think even if you look at the U.S. too, yeah, a lot of that perspective can be flipped immediately to you know, some of the cities you highlight, like Baltimore, if you look at Memphis, if you look at some of these cities where you know the, the death rate is outrageously high it could quickly fall if you make some of those adjustments but i think one of the things we don't have in the u.s is the brutality Uh, and you know that's to be expected but it seems like the cartel brutality has just continued to skyrocket you highlighted the zetas earlier how they were (laughs) the unique one out of an already chaotic situation but it seems like they pushed it to another level and it has just continued moving forward from there so why do you think the brutality has skyrocketed so much? And, and what do you think that plays in it as well? You know, whether it's for the citizens on the ground, as you were talking about wanting to form some of these, you know, militia groups to stand against the cartels, or if it's even the politicians, the police, whoever it might be as well. So you know, I spent a lot of time in the last 20 years talking to the, the murderers and talking to people who, who didn't carry out the brutality. 
uh, and trying to get into their own minds. I mean, like, I feel as a journalist, part of our work is we, you know, we've got to report on this, tell these stories, we've got to understand it. So, like, getting how come, you know, what's your story? How come, you know, you're doing this? How do you feel about this? Do you feel guilty? So we see a few factors. One is that a lot of the people who are recruited or carrying out the violence um, are people who who are very violent, hateful people. And I say hateful, in some cases you have literal psychopaths or people who really, you know, who kind of, you know, you, you always find that, you know, in any, in any case, the kind of guy would be the serial killer, the kind of bully. You're going to find them. They're going to rise in this situation. But a lot of them are not necessarily like that. But one guy, had, uh, I profile him in, in the book, Blood Gun Money, um, a guy in Honduras, and it's an example of someone like this, someone I got a bit closer to. Um, but he had a ver- he was abandoned as a kid by his, both his parents. Um, actually, his mom had gone to the United States, and so again, you get some of these immigration things can can be very some of the immigration patterns can actually be very hurtful for a lot of people in these countries. Is people abandoning their countries to flee their countries to go to the, the different country and then leaving kids behind and this kind of stuff. But he grew up kind of abandoned, so very you know basically dumped as a kid and kind of on the street and was kind of very very hateful like had this hate in his heart and and this is a guy I went to you know i went and got drunk with this guy you know went to a club and i didn't realize quite how how deep he was in first of all but he was kind of you know he had he was kind of a nice side to him quite a, a good looking kind of kind of you know a well-built guy um but he had this hate in his heart and, and then he, he, when i eventually interviewed him and talked to him about this stuff i don't know a couple of years before it happened and he described because when he was abandoned as a kid and then he was some other kid on the street said, oh, we've got a, there's a house we can rob and take you some money from. And they went in there and it was, a, it was actually a, a kind of woman who looked after a bunch of kids. And the kid who'd taken him there had lived there and had be, be kind of had an abusive environment and wanted revenge. And they went in there, these are the kids, they went in there and they butchered everybody in the house. And that was like, I mean, once you've done that, it's kind of no going back. Um, but he got in the mentality of, I don't, I don't care. I don't give a fuck about the world. I, 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 you know, the world's been horrible to me. I don't give a fuck about the world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get what's mine. So then they, they get up, start rising up and robbing people, and and then it gets noticed by the by the gangsters, and then they recruit him as a as, as a cartel as a cartel hitman, and he starts carrying out murders and starts decapitating people and doing all this this crazy gangster stuff. And then at the same time, he's kind of having a family and you know, has a family and has kids, and and, and he's like, oh, I want all my kids to be to grow up with a dad and you know it's kind of weird and then eventually he ends up getting murdered so that becomes that thing now you i talk to people who recruit young kids for the cartels and stuff and they're like we look out for those kids we look out for the kids who got we, we, no, it's not gonna be good for us to come nice kid he's got lives in no we want kids who are being brutalized so it's kind of and this kind of a circle that goes on because think about what's happened in mexico the last 20 years right you know, more than, you know, way more than, more than quarter of a million probably cartel-related murders last 20 years in Mexico. Insane. Of those people who have been murdered, they've got kids who are growing up. You know, my dad was like some setter who got, but also they're people who committed the murders, they've got kids. So there's people growing up now who are like second, third generation, I mean, more, you know, like with this stuff, with this violence. So this is all, all kind of driving it. But also, I think if you get to the more 
mechanical thing of so when I talk to people, so like, do you feel um, guilty? Now they sometimes some of them do have guilt, some of them don't. Some of them, you know, they find Christ in in prison and that kind of thing. But one of the things that takes away their guilt is they're like, I'm under orders. I'm fighting in a war and I'm under orders. If you're like, you know, if you do something bad and you feel, you know, like if if you're like um, a violent guy, but you're in like, I don't know, you're in a bar and somebody um, disrespects you and you get angry and you, and you kind of anything, oh, God, I went, I, well, that was my mistake. I should have, I should have calmed down. I should have just bit my tongue and walked away. It's my fault. Then that's one that you could feel guilty about. And then if you like, I don't know if you went too far and you killed somebody, you're like, I feel bad about. It. I killed that kid. You know, I feel bad about that. That was my fault. That was on me. But if you're in a cartel and you've got orders, well, you can do about it. You've got orders. You've got to go down. You've got to kill that guy. I'm under orders. I can't. I can't not do it. Or they're going to kill me. So there's a certain guilt taken away, and these are these are, these are understanding them as uh, as machines of violence, as mechan uh, structures. Now, what happens? What's the logic of cartel warfare? The logic is you um, have to control the territory. Um, how do you control the territory? So uh, this is, you know, this goes back to to militarists. Um, you had in the Guatemalan Civil War, you had. Um, the military wanted to control villages, which are which are being uh, which have guerrilla, you know, insurgent groups trying to get there. So they go in a village and like we need to commit terror. So we're going to get a couple of people who we know are working with the guerrillas, and we're going to decapitate them in front of everyone, everyone, and stick their heads here. So you know, you use terror to control the territory. That's what the cartels do. They're unleashed. The military is unleashed without any kind of responsibility or any any kind of structure. If it's not like you know, you're going to like and have to you know. You know, you, you're going to commit terror. So then it escalates. Um, you know, they, they, they leave 12 decapitated, but oh, they leave 12, we're going to leave 28. Um, with an escalation of terror and also terror done publicly, terror done through the internet, you know, propaganda war on the internet as well with this terror um, to, to control, to have power. Um, and, and, and you've got guys unleashed, uh, with, I mean, what happened, um, in Vietnam when you had the American, you know, a bunch of, uh, kids, you know, from, you know, maybe might, some of them might be nice kids from these different towns and cities around the United States and you put them in Vietnam and some of them commit a massacre and rape and stuff in some villages, you know, same thing with these, you know, you, you unleash a bunch of guys in these areas with guns and, and, and power and, you know, you guys are, you know, they're not going to commit rape and they're not going to commit murder and they're not going to just shake people down and make money and, you know, you know they're going to behave nicely. I mean, you know, these... So I think that's, you know, part of the thing. It's kind of a... I uh, understand it as a as an armed conflict, uh, as a weird hybrid armed conflict. Um, again, a big question is how do you get out of this? <laughs> you know, how, do you, how do you pull back from this? And it becomes... What it's been in, in, in some ways is a war that cannot be won but cannot be stopped. So it's kind of stuck in this endemic violence. And it's like, how do we how do we stop this thing? We can't win this thing, actually. And you know, we throw more stuff into it, but also we can't just press the button and stop this thing. So how can we wind this down? It's got to stop eventually. Um, but it might be another decade at least before this thing stops. And so let's talk about the US's role in this and obviously the premise of the book. We have 
so many guns in the U.S. and it's become a topic of debate for having to, you know, reconsider what we can consider the Second Amendment allows us to have and whatever it might be. And what you have is adding fuel to the fire from the U.S. of having these very powerful weapons that are so easily able to be transported down to Mexico and further into Latin America. So I guess from our perspective, what are some of the quick changes that you think that the U.S. should be considering that should be looking deeper into to help mitigate this issue? Because obviously what's happening down there is extremely brutal and, as you said, is kind of an ongoing conflict. But fuel to the fire is being added by the ability to traffic so many high-powered guns at such a quick, you know, such a quick time for realistically for the cartels, very little money. So with the specifically with the gun issue, right? Um, and, and when I looked at this, one of the things that kind of kind of really makes me think is, I mean, you've got a couple of hundred thousand guns a year going to the cartels. You've got this blatant buying, you know, going to shops. In some cases, going 10 AK-47s, please. Um, people buying blatantly and openly these weapons and taking them down to Mexico and using them in this extreme violence. So it's not the kind of basic enforcement is not done. And, you know, when I sat down and talked to, you know, the head of the AR- AR-15 owners of America, I was like, yeah, okay, you're into AR-15s. Do you believe that the cartel should be sold all these guns? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Talk to even like militia members I talked to, real kind of Second Amendment fundamentalists. I was like, you know, do you believe in, in arming the cartels? You know, they, 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 um, so, so I, I mean, beyond the debate, and I don't even get into the debate about, you know, um, uh, assault rifle bans or, or like any of that stuff or, or, or changing the Second Amendment, any of that stuff. Forgetting about any of that, just basically with the current laws now, why is this not working? Why is there not basic enforcement and, and these guns going to the cartels? So the basic stuff that can be done, and these are suggestions that I put in the book, which actually some got bought in to the Bipartisan um, Safer Communities Act of 2022, um, was, you know, one, okay, you, so you've got like four main methods that the cartels are acquiring firearms. One is through straw buyers. So straw buyer, then only doesn't know, somebody's got a clean record, um, hey, Reed, um, can you buy me a couple of AK-47s? You've got a clean license. You know, I've got a bit of a problem. Can you buy them for me? Oh, sure, I'll get them for you. You know, I'll give you 100 bucks a pop. This is the biggest way that they're really getting guns. And you look at these, and there's cases, you know, there's one case where a guy walked in a store, bought 10 AK-47s, they gave him 600 bucks payment plus the money for the guns. One of the guns was used in the murder of an American agent. The guy got probation. Crime is lying on a form. So one thing is simply clamping down on that. If you're buying guns for the cartel, you know, you're involved in, you know, if you know this, if you, if you know the guy you're selling to is like cartel-affiliated guy, in that particular one, it was a guy, the guy's buying marijuana off this guy. It was a guy linked to the Setas in Mexico. So this, this is, you know, it's, it's a suspect guy. Um, and and if, if this guy asks you to buy 10 AK-47s, you know, <laughs> and you know, that's a serious crime, right? It shouldn't be probation. Uh, and it, it sounds bad, you know, uh, saying for like lock people up, lock people up, but it's like, this is just basic law enforcement. 
um, to clamp down on these guys. You know, like if people are consciously buying guns for the cartel. Now, again, this issue of terrorism thing, if you were to call them terrorist groups, you could give them 25 years. But even without that, even just like right now, just changing sentencing guidelines. And that was kind of partly done. They've got to actually enforce this stuff now and get it out of the message. But just saying to people, if you're consciously buying guns for the cartel, it's not about, you know, you can have your right to bear arms. If you've got a clean record, you can buy a gun to defend yourself. But if you're buying gun for a drug cartel, you know, that's a crime. That's the first thing. Second thing, which is some there's some dispute about, but universal background checks. Um, I mean, the vast majority of, according to the surveys, the vast majority of conservatives, of gun owners, are in favor of universal background checks. It's simply saying because they're abusing these, I mean, you know, there's cases of this on tape and proven as guys who are like buying huge amounts of guns and then reselling them as private sales and they're going to cartels to gangs. It's a way of trafficking, they're abusing this traffic guns. Um, if you just say every every time there's a gun sale, you know, there's kind of ID um, checked and so that, you know, you're not blatantly selling these to, to criminals, you know, you know at least. Um, uh, that's the second measure. Some things with like, I mean, I would say particularly buying the Barrett 50s, the 50 caliber, some kind of extended background check. I mean, if someone wants to buy, if someone's an extreme hobbyist and wants to, a 50 cal, and I talked to guys, I, went, I, went, I spent time at the SHOT Show, which is the biggest firearms trade show in the world in Las Vegas. I talked to guys there with like 50 cal enthusiasts. I know one guy was describing how he was firing at a deer um, and the, the the shot missed, but the, the vibration made the deer explode anyway. Because, you know, like, you know, he, he was saying like, you know, you know, if you're an extreme hobbyist, again, I mean, if you... I'm, without even getting into the, to the argument, I'm saying, okay, you've got a right to have that. But, you know, some kind of background check, extended background check, saying, okay, who, who wants to buy 50 cal? Because the fact that you've got, like, some, you know, kid in a baseball cap with $10,000 in cash buying a, you know, buying it and then they're gone. They, they, they might have, they might pass the background check, the instant background check, but then you've got it and they, you find out, oh, there was, we, we sold some 50 cals. Oh, right, they're gone and then they're in Mexico and they're being used to, to blow off soldiers' legs. Um. And, uh, you know, and then looking at the, the ghost guns, which is like another method now, the ghost guns. The fourth method is um, stealing, which is not a huge thing for the cartels because they prefer new guns. But, you know, there's this stuff like simply where um, people have, you know, gun shops where they have unlocked safes where like criminals have gone in there and just, you know, take, so just think that, put a lock on your safe. These kind of basic measures that I think the vast majority of gun owners agree with um, and just saying, just, just try and stop guns going to criminals kind of basic stuff. Um, that's, that's what I advocate, you know, the, the book's mainly a work of investigation, not argument or preaching to, to look at this issue. But I, but like to say, I mean, the basic, basic stuff could make a real big difference. It hasn't been done. And okay. There's an argument. Okay. If you don't get them from the United States, they'll get them from China or Russia. Or somewhere else. The thing is, first of all, if you've got like a kid who's like, you know, in a, in a playground and some kid is like, you know, you know, like stabbing kids and you're selling him knives and you say, oh, we'll get knives from somewhere. We've got muscles selling the knives anyway. I mean, you, you still got a responsibility if you're selling guns to these people. But the second thing is it makes a difference how easy they're getting and how cheap they are. I've been at these scenes where they'll shoot you know, 500 bullets 
and they'll kill not only the guy in the car, but the the, the, the pregnant woman in the car behind, and the guy having tackles on the side of the street because they've got as many bullets as they want, and, and they like firing, you know, like firing them on. They they, they buy a semi-automatic in the US and they turn it to full automatic and just spray. Um, but also, then they got guns. They then use the guns in some murder and then sell them cheaply to some kid. And so you have kids in school with guns and kind of a whole, you know. So the, the level of guns, even if you made it more difficult to acquire guns, made them more expensive, that'll make a difference. So I think I think tackling the gun trafficking uh, and, and there's basic stuff that could be done. Now, I have hopes that the progress can be made on this, but I think it makes it difficult when you've got such a divided political environment in the United States um, because, um, you know, there's not really a kind of idea of we're going to kind of work together to try and solve issues. It's like, we're just going to, we, we hate them. They hate us. And we, you know, we're, um, and also a lot of the politicians in the United States on, on both sides aren't looking for clear, real solutions. They're kind of looking for stuff, which is, you know, like, uh, stuff they can use on social media, which can kind of go off rather than saying, here's a real problem. How do we find real solutions to this? Do you think if they saw what was going on down south in the very, in in the ways you've seen it, like literally on the ground and actually had to see what the Iron River is actually causing, do you think that could help change the tune as well? Like this is part of the reason, like I said, I was so excited to be able to have you on as a guest and for people to to continue to pushing on what's happening is because I feel like there's very much a lack of knowledge on what's going on. So do you think that that should be something as well that we need our politicians, our people that are in these power positions to actually look at what's happening down south. Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, I think people need to understand it. But also, it's about you know having conversations and, and and like I'll be happy to sit in a room with anybody from any side and talk about this stuff. Uh, currently, um, you know, politics is it, it's kind of broken and it's hard to find real solutions um and this is a i mean fentanyl is is a seriously bad big problem fentanyl um and and it is devastating and they need to get very seriously but it's how to to kind of you know the, the current political environment and politics itself is not working so are, are we in a are we in a stage now as well where these kind of politics we had the kind of structures we had the institutions we had like worked in the 20th century, worked in moments of the 20th century, kind of worked in the 1950s, you know, 1960s, and you kind of had a, had a kind of thing of these things working, and they're no longer fit for purpose. So, you know, is there, are, we, are we living through a kind of change in institutions that have been thrown off by staff and said, so now these are not functioning well, you know, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, sure. I mean, part of that, um, where we need to, to try and um, inform people, absolutely, that's, that's you know, that's, what a, what a, you know, much of his journalist is, um, but in the US, um, you know, h- how do we actually get pragmatic solutions to rural problems? Um, um, maybe like looking at it, sometimes if the you know people sitting down looking at the, the real things. Now, also uh, talking about the violence, there is, I mean, the US has seen um, has got this horrific problem with fentanyl. The U.S. is vulnerable to spillover violence from Mexico, and we saw a massacre in California, um, a cartel-style massacre in a, in, a, in, a, in a town in California um, in, in January. 
um, where they they killed like um, you know the the baby and the young mother and and, and, the, and the granny and it's like, like like horrific massacre there, gang related but kind of gang linked to cartel stuff and we we got dangers you know these things have been held back in the United States for some years but there's dangers that is spilling over so it's kind of good to be conscious about it now and think okay and also like you know care about what's happening in Mexico because it's linked to Mexico but also think about how you deal with the United States and how you avoid uh, the United States in 10, 15, 20 years time um, looking more like Mexico. So we were just talking about cartels kind of slowly almost gaining influence in the US and you highlighted an example in California. I think a, a pretty underrated thing that's happening in California as well is the cartel is actually starting to grow marijuana there and I think even starting to indulge in, you know, creating other drugs there so they basically don't have to cross the border. Are you seeing an increase in this in the cartel's influence in the US whether it's direct with how they impact, you know, the gang and the gang cultures we have or maybe even in more specifically our politics, our social culture, you know, and in a lot of ways that they actually have an impact in Mexico. So the the cartels in the United States um, are certainly becoming more entrenched and stronger. Uh, you've had you know cartel activity in the United States for for many decades. Um, you know as, as the cartels have grown and you've had them you know moving around uh, drugs there. What you've seen in the last um, few years is you've seen the well, the cartel structures have become bigger in Mexico and, and more, you know, more powerful. You know. And then you've seen it going. So you have, look at these new cartels, like the Jalisco New Generation cartel uh, and the new factions, the similar cartel, like Los Chapitos. More, you know, deeper networks of distribution in the United States. So if you go back 20 years, you have uh, where, you know, they have cartels like saying, well, we sell... Uh, we, we're the big wholesalers. We don't really care about selling down. So you had like um, drug traffickers going back to the 90s, early 2000s, selling cocaine. And then the, the Mexicans are the big wholesalers. And they sell down to American organizations. There's one called the Black Mafia Family. Um, you know, they're, they're involved and they're kind of, they're more like the, the, the distributors and stuff. And then other group, groups in the US. With the new ones, like the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, they've become like more of those mid-level dealers as well in the United States. So they're actually selling it more at the kind of kilo level as well. They're kind of more affiliated directly with the people in Mexico. Uh, Now, in the United States, when there's been um, cartel-related murders, and there's been a couple of big cases of this, US law enforcement hit it very hard. One case was some setas doing some murders uh, around uh, Texas in the um, in the nineteen in the in the two thousands. So, so one case was um, you had one case in the two thousands of people in 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 Texas around the like Rio Grande Valley area around the Laredo area. Some murders carried out there. And the setas were a bit of a breakaway group really a kind of rebellious group inside the mexican drug war and that was clamped down on quite hard and now you had a case in california of a group called los palillos who were like a breakaway group from the ariana felix cartel they carried out a bunch of murders 
this is a story that which hadn't wasn't really you know well known. Um, but they carried out, they dissolved bodies and stuff. I went to a ranch where they just dissolved bodies uh, on the California side. Uh, recently went to the site of it. But they uh, they were carrying out a bunch of murders and then they were hit pretty hard. So the cartels generally learned a lesson was, you know, the United States is our land of milk and honey. This is where we make billions and billions of dollars. And we don't really want to upset law enforcement or make you know, real noise here. We want to sell drugs here. And in Mexico, can we do what we like because Mexico's out of control. However, there's you know these are building up and, and this could change. Also, you had in California the the gangs who were affiliated working with the cartels, um, like the Mexican mafia. Um, they created their own rules and they reduced violence themselves. Going back from the 1990s, they banned drive-by shootings because obviously drive-by shootings you can kill innocent people, so you had to, you had to go up with a with a gun and kill your victim. You know, you can't kill uh, women. You can't kill kids. These are the rules that, that they have. This this gang murder we saw in January was worrying because it was like breaking those rules. Now, the problem with these rules, you know, they, they can be kept in and you have hard law enforcement, which help, you know, but now we've seen the last couple of years, demoralization in US law enforcement, a lot of people leaving, um, a lot of people fed up, um, rising, um, a rising drug abuse on the streets, a lot of issues that start to come out. Um, and you know, will we see? Could we see start to see like cartel murders creeping up again? You got to keep an eye on that. Now we're not really seeing it yet, so I don't want to overplay the problem. But I think it's something that the need to be vigilant about. Another thing, another side. So you also have on one side the cartels, the other side you have uh, MS13. So MS13 are also, you know, uh, you've got this kind of now this this East Coast group of MS13, like they're like a new kind of group has arisen. They're big. I talked to a guy who was uh, who had, in Honduras who'd run uh, an MS13 clique in Maryland. They started doing things like shakedowns, shakedowns within the migrant communities. And again, I mean, forget about um, the race. This can be. Because I, you know, I talk to to white American guys who've been working for cartels, doing this stuff. Um, MS13 start recruiting, um, you know, different people of, you know, you know, right, not just you know, Latin, you know, like I said, Americans start recruiting people, you know, green Chinese guys and different people in, the, in these areas. Um, so it can be like um, it's not, you know, uh, a race thing or a question of immigrant status. And sometimes, you know, this gets, you know, politically it's been a very charged issue because of, you know, this, this question of Trump and so forth. And, but this is this is a very, it's a very concerning thing of, of law enforcement. And in fact, it's the people from the migrant communities who are the most vulnerable to to the kidnappings, to to the shakedowns, to all of this stuff. A lot of them were very concerned about, about the, the issue of, of cartels, issue of organized crime in these places. So we've talked about the U.S. and we've talked about Mexico. There's another power player, which we've highlighted a little bit earlier with fentanyl, would be China. Obviously, they've there's been a lot of controversy about how much they're actually a role player within the fentanyl import. Um, obviously, there's been calls in the U.S. that they are the main player, but the CCP recently came out this week and essentially said that they have no background and they have no involvement in any of the fentanyl that's supplied to the U.S. Do you think that 
for one, the CCP knows and has some coordination with the cartels trying to be able to kind of push this forward into the U.S. border. And two, is that how would we be able to handle that situation as well, seeing as we talk about great ideas of how to, whether it's, you know, we look at militarization or we look at ways that we can, you know, change the society and culture down there and in the U.S., but you have these other power players around the world as well who are looking into funneling what's essentially poison right through our southern border. Yeah, so... I mean, with I mean, first with 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 China, um, it looks from what I've seen, you know, the evidence is that this stuff's coming out of China in a big way, and also out of by Chinese chemists in India, some other places. When I saw these statements by by the Chinese officials, it's like complete denial. It wasn't like oh, we, we, we're trying to crack down on it, but we were doing. Other. It was like there is no fentanyl trafficking. From China to Mexico it doesn't exist. So, with, and I was kind of a bit knocked down by that statement. Um, you know, it's like with the guns. I mean, you know, like you say, well, you know, US got responsibility with guns, and, and US was like, well, we're trying to fight this and blah blah blah. But it's not like there is no a complete denial. Um, and and that kind of reflects a bit how how this Chinese structure works. It's a very different political language. It's not like it's just like there is no there is no trafficking. So how do you begin to start now? I don't know China. Um, I don't know what their motivations are. I, I, I'm sure it's, it's an authoritarian state, so they know this is happening. Um, now you get into this, you know, it, is the fact, I mean, you know, without getting too conspiratorial, do they care if this fentanyl is going and killing lots of Americans and weakening the United States when that's their main economic kind of military geopolitical rival um or just i mean you could you could flip again go back to the u.s does, does do americans care that much that guns are destabilizing mexico and stuff it's not happening right in their neighbors it's, it's difficult this stuff gets away but is there, there other motivations there so i mean, I mean mexico people stuck in conspiratorial like oh well the united states wants to destabilize mexico wants a weaker mexico that's why they're trafficking the guns down here and I can get into Fast and Furious. I haven't mentioned Fast and Furious, which is also something which you know some um, very well-informed listeners might well know about and, and, and be questioning. Well, for, you know, where there was a, 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 an operation by the ATF where they knew about these guns being trafficked to try and create a bigger sting, a bigger conspiracy case, and then ended up being involved, which makes it look like the US state is deliberately kind of arming these cartels, which kind of fuels conspiracies down here. It's people are like, well, the Americans are deliberately doing this stuff to make Mexico weak. I don't believe that. I think it's actually various reasons why they, you know, the United States is allowing these guns to go south. It's not all part of a big plan. With China, I don't know. I don't know enough about them in, you know, inside their motives, their players, but it's happening. Um, to talk about fentanyl, I think, and again, fentanyl is a big, this is a big game changer that's happened. To try and make some sense of fentanyl, I think also we want to bring crystal meth into the conversation as well. Crystal meth huge in the United States. So we've seen a change um, in the drugs, the, the, the biggest drugs now being trafficked in the United States by the cartels. It used to be cocaine, heroin, marijuana. Now the biggest are fentanyl and crystal meth. Uh, we moved, I mean, first with, with marijuana and cocaine, marijuana, you could say, well, people smoke it. You know, now we've kind of legalized it anyway. 
So that was kind of like, well, we're we fighting a war against marijuana. It didn't really make sense. Um, I do believe in marijuana legalization. It hasn't solved the problem of cartels, but I do believe in marijuana legalization. Cocaine, I mean, it caused, you know, crack caused a lot of damage. Also the sales of it caused a lot of damage, but kind of cocaine is is a bit more of a mixed thing. A lot of people take cocaine recreationally. It's a bit more of a mix in there. Crystal meth and fentanyl do in, in, in insane damage. It's also a change from plants to synthetic chemicals. You know, like marijuana, cocaine, heroin, they all came from, okay, marijuana was a plant and you, and you literally smoked a plant. Um, cocaine, you had the coca leaf. You went through a bit of a process, but it was kind of a bit closer to the plant, the coca leaf. Even heroin, you know, a bit closer to the to the opium stuff. It was still kind of a chemical process, but but synthetic stuff where you're creating and, and synthesizing chemicals at this level, it's a lot further away from any kind of natural thing there to these synthetic chemicals technology linked to the pharmaceutical industry. So they're kind of backpacking, piggybacking off the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry creates, and China's obviously massive for this creates a lot of these chemicals and then we can take derivatives from chemicals and then make them into these things and sell them. And you've got an alternative pharmaceutical industry alongside the real one, which is, you know, fentanyl crystal meth. Um, so it kind of gets deep into this stuff. I mean, the, the prices are crazy how cheaply you can buy some of these precursors for. I mean, so, you know, you can buy some of these precursors. You might buy a thousand dollars worth of precursors and make a million dollars worth of, you know, worth of, with the drugs, that's 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 what these guys are looking at. That's why they're motivated to do this stuff. Um, and the effects. I mean, you see, I used to know heroin addicts um, back in the UK when I was a teenager, and you know they were bad. You could talk to them. I, I was recently up in Tijuana talking to some people on fentanyl, on crystal meth, and these guys are zombies. These guys are zombified. I mean, this, this stuff's, you know, I think messing up their whole system way more um so you know how do, how do we deal with this stuff uh, and this is kind of uh, i think getting a bit into a kind of deeper issue this is kind of part of maybe we've kind of become so removed from nature so removed from our our like removed from nature removed from communities removed from family all this kind of stuff um, and then we end up with these people taking these chemicals. You know, they're 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 broken. They 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 don't talk to their family. They 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 got no community sense. They got no, uh, and then they're taking these chemicals, which are just like out there, but by this break off from the pharmaceutical industry. So there's maybe some kind of deep issues about what these pharmaceuticals mean. But China's not not a good faith player in this. Absolutely not. Why do you think that the Mexican cartels are interested in putting? fentanyl into the drugs i mean is it simply just money is it simply that it's easier to package and cross the u.s border is there you know is more motivation behind the scenes you had an interesting conversation in the book with jelly roll and i I love the name by the way but he highlighted how every drug dealer in his mind felt remorse because they knew that this was going to be killing somebody someone that they supplied to you know would evidently die when you look at the fentanyl trade, a lot of people are dying. And when those are your customer base, I just can't imagine that they look at it as this long-term economic opportunity to continue to supply the US. You know, it's, I feel like it would eventually hurt the bottom line 
you know, and overall it feels the amount that they're actually putting into these drugs as well, you know, eventually it'll create kind of a ne- negative feedback loop. So what is the motivation there? Is it, is it simply just money or is, you think there's, there's other aspects to it? So yeah, Jerry Roll is a very interesting character, a, a dealer who was, was a drug dealer in Baltimore uh, and sold heroin and crack um, and felt guilty because he was like, now I think he was being generous by saying every drug dealer, or maybe he was talking about the drug dealers there for where he's from. I think he knew that he was kind of poisoning his own community. So that he kind of, you know, thought back and, you know, what he described when he was at high school um, and suddenly he could be like earning thousands of dollars every week. And like, why well, go to high school? You know, they're like, they're, these are the, you know, they're like 17 years old and they're like going to you know, nightclubs and they got buying, all buy brand new clothes and, and, and having girlfriends who are in their twenties and, you know, they kind of live in this, but then they're selling drugs, which are poisoning their own community. So then later on in life, he feels some guilt about that. Um, I don't, I don't think, I think if you look at people like Los Chapitos, um, they're pretty cold. Um, they're not really, they're, they're, they're pretty far away. Now, some of them, interestingly, will ban, I mean, I think the Chapitos will ban selling fentanyl inside their communities in Sinaloa. So when they see their communities in Sinaloa, in, in Mexico, they're like, we don't want to sell fentanyl to our own friends, kids and stuff. And But when this stuff's going up to a different country and they're kind of separated from it. So I think they kind of cut off. And plus, like I described earlier, the brutality of Mexican organized crime, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you you, gotta be, you can't be too generous in this game. You've got, you got, you got to be cold. You've got to be very aggressive. I think they're motivated by money. It's logistically... The profits so big, like I talk about, like with, with, with you know, with cocaine was massive money. But cocaine still, you know, you do things like, okay, cocaine, uh, you, you buy it from the Colombians and it might sell for $2,000 a key. But then you've got to move it all the way from Colombia up to Mexico and then it, you know, gets sold in Mexico for, for like 10000 a key. And then you flip it over the border and sell it for like, you know, just flip it over the border, sell it for 15000 a key. And then it kind of move it through the United States and it gets to 25000 so you invest money, get money back, you know, you're making big money. But say so this stuff, you buy, you know, buy thousand dollars worth of chemicals, flip them to a million dollars. Profit's insane. That's what's really motivating them. But also like you then avoid so many different parts of the process. So when they make heroin, you've got a bunch of people growing opium poppies. You've got a long process. They've got to plant the poppies. They've got to wait several months and then harvest the poppies. Then you've got, they're in the mountains. They're obviously the Mexican military can go there or can, you know, it can burn them down or it can go there and say, well, give us some money and we'll let you keep these poppies. Um, then you've got to process them, you know, thing, and then, and then move, move them. And they eventually become the, 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 and it's quite bulky. Fentanyl, don't worry about that. All you've got to do is just get an order and get some precursor chemicals or some finished fentanyl from China, from Asia, and then bring it in. You make sure it comes in your container. It's way smaller. It's nice it's an interesting uh, thing about the logistics of this. Marijuana, okay, old school marijuana is massive. You know, these, these big marijuana busts. You know, you, you, some of them may some bus, they fill up a football stadium with the amount of marijuana they busted. You know, huge amounts. Uh, you know, uh, cocaine, it, 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 it's a lot smaller, but it's still these bricks of cocaine, the big bus, huge places, heroin, smaller still, and then like fentanyl, little chemicals. You could just stash, you know, you could have, um, you know, this, you know, a glass full of fentanyl. It's enough to kill millions of people. 
you stick that in a car, stick that in a, you know, in a gas tank of a car. So, you know, this stuff now, it's kind of like, yeah, how are they going to stop this? I mean, it's kind of game changer. It kind of throws off, you know, they're trying now. They're saying, well, we've got to, we've got to admit it's got to clamp down. It's, let's see how this plays out, but the, the scale of it. So I think just logistics and money, the motivation has been. Now, one of the things that perhaps they miscalculated or a consequence of this, and some of these guys are not, I mean, they're cl- the cartels are extremely sophisticated and extremely clever in their operations, and they've grown organically over, over decades. But some of the people are not necessarily that forward thinking. So they're just thinking like, uh, you know, they're kind of thinking operationally, bring in product, move product, sell, but they've also got a million things on their mind. You know, like um, we're dealing with the, you know, the other, you know, the Jalisco cartels fighting us in this territory. We've got to pay off this, you know, they, they've got little things going on. So not necessarily thinking long-term game plan. One thing they perhaps miscalculated or one consequence they're seeing now is the political reaction in the United States has rightfully been big in reaction to fentanyl deaths. So how do we, you know, like now they're seeing a reaction and then now they're seeing, you know, new indictments just come out against Los Chapitos. They're like, bring these guys down, bring these guys down because fentanyl. So they're seeing a reaction. Um, but I don't know. It's going to be very interesting in the next few years, um, next few months, next few years, how this plays out. Um, if we continue seeing this um, or if the the current opioid ep- epidemic is going to kind of burn itself out in the United States. And, you know, if you have 107,000 people dying in a year, is that less people, to, less addicts now? I don't know. I mean, or is it just more people coming? So do you see some of these kingpins? You've obviously were at El Chapo's trial. You've had so much experience, you know, and the crazy thing about it, it's the kingpins, they come and go. You know, there's only a few that have ever made it, you know, for decades long in the game. Do you think they understand who they are and what role they really play in this? I mean, it, one of the things I see, it's a crazy dynamic. You look at someone like El Chapo, then moves to the Chipitos, the family takes over. There's so much respect and there's so much you would expect that in such a brutal game, it's constant new people popping up, but there is that level of respect for the family. So do you think they understand who they are, like the role they play, what what the impact is that they're having? Um, it's a very interesting question. I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to some of these kingpins, some quite high-level people more recently. And... They, it's kind of sad to say, I mean, they kind of make a pact with the devil, I would say. Um, at some point when they get into this, they kind of make a pact with the devil. And I think they, they, I guess like all human beings, we kind of, we're, we're all heroes in our own stories. So they don't see themselves as being villains. They kind of, in their own world as well, got their own kind of motivated with their own ego, like who's the best drug trafficker, who's the biggest drug trafficker. Some of them do literally kind of satanic shit, like um, cannibalism and stuff, but kind of ritualized cannibalism is kind of part of... um, They... 
I mean, maybe an old school guy like El Mayo. El Mayo, you, you mentioned El Mayo a couple of times, and he's, he's an interesting character. I mean, El Mayo's hasn't been arrested. <laughs> a guy who's going to run, you know, how many hundreds of millions has he made? And he's was he sitting in some village in Sinaloa still? I and mean, kind of old school. Um, but he's going to die soon. Um, the kind of big power players now, El Mencho, these guys are pretty brutal. Los Chapitos, kind of pretty brutal. The, power, the new power players come up under them. Um, in terms of how they see themselves, I mean, you know, it was going back to the Knights Templar. You had a, a character there, a, a kind of kind of Colonel Kurtz character from, from Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now, um, where he kind of, uh, you know, had this power and, and, and then he was supposedly killed and then he kind of, rec- you know, he walked around in white robes and people thought he was a ghost and he wrote his own Bible and kind of, you know, made people kind of learn his words and kind of got in you know, a complete ego state. So you get kind of some cases like that or going back to Pablo Escobar. So I did, well, you know, I want to be a politician and I'll be a president. Or something. Um, it, they're interesting. I mean, there, there are people who, you know, have come from, from below and, 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 and are smart, talented, driven people. Um, who who have kind of created these these alternative power structures? Um, some of them, you know, the ostentatiousness. Um, you know, they they you know they're going to have a. Some of them are just you know, it's just about women. I mean, they just you know like they just um, they're like they're like kind of how you imagine some rock and roll stars or kind of rap stars behave. You know, I'm going to sleep with a million women and 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 have nice cars and just kind of live that kind of moment, um, pure kind of hedonism. Um, I don't know if they they really if there's somebody who's really seen himself in a kind of political or, I mean, uh, Nasario Moreno was the kind of nice guy who try and be like philosophical. And he had this kind of number two was a guy called Latuta who was a school teacher, um, and so he was a kind of more of the educated bad guy, and he had kind of saw themselves as being these kind of heroic. Sometimes they seem to spend heroic figures, like kind of they'll compare themselves to like Pancho Villa's Zapata type figures. Seems kind of a rebellion, and if and if Pancho Villa was alive today, he probably would be, he probably would be some like major narco. To be fair, um, but like, uh, yeah, I mean they're they're kind of weird antiheroes. And uh, my second book, Gangster Waters, particularly looks at the kind of profile is kind of weird antiheroes. They kind of mix of. Um, uh, CEOs of companies mixed with paramilitary leaders mixed with rock stars. It's kind of the kind of weird place they have in society. Um, it's kind of scar, you know, that figure of Scarface. <laughs> you, know, yeah, you know, that's a kind of yeah. They're, they're pretty crazy. They're pretty crazy figures in society. But but uh, um, I, I I don't I, I don't think they they really. I, I mean, it, it was a weird discourse by this actress. Called uh, Kate de Castillo, who who, who helped uh, coordinate a meeting between Sean Penn and, and Chapo, and she wrote she played this role of a kind of drug trafficker and had this kind of long rant of like, "Oh, you need to traffic with love, and I trust you more than the government." And it's kind of idea that kind of drug traffickers could gain a consciousness and kind of be a solution, kind of sit down, and I, I wouldn't really put my hopes in that. Uh, sometimes some of them can, you know, some of them have got hearts and can show mercy, and they are powerful people, but like. That they can really going to kind of be some solution to this problem. I, I don't really see that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's such a difficult thing to look at because it's such a 
it's like being famous, but as you highlight like an anti-hero where it's just, there's so few people that'll ever be at in that situation. I mean, it's, it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around even what's really even what a light, what it's like day to day. And, you know, there's different ones where you have, you know, El Chapo's, you're just highlighting Sinaloa, and then you'll have ones that are down South up North, wherever it might be. So I think kind of understanding that cartel dynamics really difficult. And you mentioned it earlier, and I'd love to kind of go into it fast and furious and wide receiver. And one of the things you highlighted in the book, which I thought was really interesting was that a lot of the failures there were our lack of understanding of the dynamics of the cartels. So maybe if you want to highlight, you know, what those two areas were fast and furious and wide receiver, and then, you know, kind of highlight as well, how the different dynamics of what the cartels are, you know, their formulations is what really hurt us in those situations. So, um, fast and furious, um, was a, a, an operation by the ATF carried out in Arizona, um, 2009 to 2010 starts to kind of blow open. Um, you had a previous version also from Arizona called wide receiver, uh, back in, in, in the mid two thousands, uh, basically these operations were with the idea of following, uh, gun traffickers and building conspiracy cases against gun trafficking organizations. So the same way they do about drug with drug trafficking, um, sometimes putting um, devices in the guns to trace them. Um, also just watching them, basically watching the guns be bought from stores in big numbers and, and, and taken to the cartels with fast and furious. You had around 2000 firearms, being bought by these cartels and they're just sitting there watching them. Um, eventually, one of the some of the guns from Fast and Furious ended up in the hands of criminals who shot dead an elite border patrol agent, um, Brian Terry, in, in Arizona. Uh, following his death, it kind of came out and it kind of blew open. Um I interviewed the former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, about this. I looked, you know, look, I interviewed one of the um, confidential informants in, in Wide Receiver, um, and looked at this. I think really what you see in this is first, this kind of shows the nature of these federal operations. I mean, when you get to the federal government operations, they're kind of pretty crazy about organized crime. It's kind of building conspiracy cases, and so you, you kind of see this stuff with. I mean, they do the same thing with drugs, but with drugs, you couldn't trace it in the same way. So you have people watching heroin be trafficked, watching fentanyl be trafficked, eventually try and bust these guys, but they're still kind of watching it happen. They did the same thing with guns. Um, but also, uh, in this case, they kind of misunderstood the cartel. It didn't make sense of the cartel. They kind of thought it was the cartel works like some, um, you know, like, like the US government, some kind of top-down organization. Um, where it's actually, you know, very sophisticated cells without knowledge of each other, um, which are kind of financially independent and kind of changes all this kind of stuff. So they really didn't get off the base, and they kind of so they, they they were kind of basically as they were following this operation, they were following these guys, and they they, they made, well, we've only got the bottom level guys. Um, we're just just trying to keep on following it, and then they're like they sold a thousand guns. It's kind of looking kind of rather bad. No, we've got to keep on going. It's like one and a half thousand guns. Okay. And then eventually till it kind of blows up and like, okay, we've got to take it down this guy. So it's kind of like um, ineptness I see there. 
Now, I do see those, there was politic, politics involved in that. Or the Obama White House, happened under the Obama White House. The Obama White House, like, let's, let's hit gun trafficking. Felipe Calderon went to the US and said, like, let's hit gun trafficking. Was like, let's hit gun trafficking. So there's pressure like, on trying to hit these guys, which ended up making a worse situation. And then I think that afterwards, there was a lot of cover up. So, where you do see more conspiratorial stuff is like after this was blown open, Eric Holder was like, oh, didn't know about this. Then they find out, well, that's just an email to you talking about, oh, I don't read my emails. Um, and then this kind of stuff. So, I think you see more conspiratorial stuff with kind of covering. Everyone's like, oh, it wasn't me, it was him, kind of covering up thing. Um, but I, I don't believe, I mean, there was kind of a lot of conspiracy theories, or I don't, maybe a lot of conspiracy accusations. And I know there is conspiratorial behavior sometimes, but kind of accusations of, of more organized corruption with this. One was saying, well, they did it to try and, um, because they're on an anti-gun um, platform. I don't, I don't think, if I, if I think in any, if anything, this took the issue of firearms to Mexico off the agenda for a decade because it blew up in 2011. And then now we've come back to having, you know, gun trafficking to Mexico back on the agenda a decade afterwards. For a decade, it was off the agenda. No one went near it. And, maybe a couple of million guns went to Mexico. Um, so I don't think it was really, I mean, it, you know, it, it didn't do anything to help um, the um, kind of gun control cause or whatever. Um, and then from Mexico, they're like, well, this was part of conspiracy to destabilize Mexico or a conspiracy to help arm the Sinaloa cartel. The Sinaloa cartel got a lot of those guns. I think probably more ineptness than anything. Um, and, 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 and reflecting kind of deeper problems in federal operations. Your conversation with Felipe Calderon was one of the most, like I said, my favorite parts of the book and was shocking to say the least, just to hear, to say in pop culture, you know, what we've seen, you know, El Chapo, the, the TV show on Netflix, Narcos, different shows like that. They frame him in an interesting light. And a lot of times it almost seems like they're trying to frame him at, as you know, he was at fault. He was, like I said, in the pocket of Sinaloa. Like there's like a lot of dynamics like that. But with your conversation, I think one of the more interesting dynamics is it seemed like that, that there was almost a disconnect with the US. And then also that there was a very hush hush attitude towards Mexico addressing the gun problem. So do you want to speak on that a little bit, the conversation you had with Calderon, as well as maybe what are some of the aspects in that that really surprised you that maybe when you were going into that conversation you just didn't expect? Yeah, I mean it was funny. I mean I covered Calderon, um, you know, I covered all of his his rules during 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 the period, very intensely on the ground. When I talked to him, it kind of, you know, I I interviewed him in in a in a fairly in an office in Mexico City, and he was quite open and forthcoming. And it kind of surprised me, an ex-president kind of on that way. Now, the way he was kind of quite open and and and, and didn't, it wasn't living in, you know, you think if he'd just been like running, you know, if it was the the picture of Calderon as being the kind of Darth Vader figure, the kind of evil emperor figure who was just like making, you know, $10 billion from all this, you, you think why would he be in an office, kind of quite a local office in Mexico City talking about it? I mean, he might want to defend his reputation and, and, and his legacy, but um, you know, I, I'm not. I don't quite. You know, I don't buy that really. That you know, that thing. Now, in terms of his corruption, when I interviewed him, it was before, you know, it was when there was accusations around, but it was before Garcia Luna had been had been taken. He already started distancing himself from Garcia Luna, who was this, who was his basically his 
public security secretary, who was a very powerful figure in the administration, who's since been convicted of drug trafficking. So you think, well, if this guy was corrupt, how come Philippe Bacadron didn't know? I think I think Philippe Bacadron must have known some stuff. Uh, but I don't quite see him as a Darth Vader figure. I think he did have a cons- concept, at least, of trying to reclaim the power of the Mexican state uh, and wasn't quite as, as deeply involved. Now I've got other you know, colleagues, journalists who are like, no, I'm, you know, I do believe that like there was money going right into the presidential palace and he was right in there in the kind of meetings involved in this. Um, and I don't, I find that hard, hard to do through, but, uh, but, you know, either way, I think his, 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 his military crackdown on drug cartels was a failure. You know, I do think it was a failure either way, but a couple of things that strike me, one is this thing called the Merida initiative, which is basically the U S a mechanism where the U S gave money to, to the Mexican military and Mexican government to fight the cartels. And, and some people will paint that as being well, the U S kind of imposed this war on Mexico. But he said that wasn't true. He said they Mexico went to the United States and like said, like, oh, you guys are taking drugs. You've got responsibility. Give us some money. And this is the way Felipe Calderon said He said he was sitting down with George W. Bush. And he said, he said to him, and George W. Bush said, okay, what do you guys want? And Calderon said, You seen that uh, TV show 24? He said, Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. All of those devices, we want. I want that stuff. It's <laughs> a good way to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of crazy when you get to the level of what these what these these guys are doing. So, so, so that you know that was you know Mexico wanted all this kind of equipment. Now you could look at that cynically and like, well, they wanted that stuff to help them work with the cartels and stuff. It was just kind of, but um, but anyway, it wasn't the U.S. didn't impose this on Mexico. Mexico did or, or Calderon did kind of and I, I I do believe he had a concept that he would kick out the military, um, he would get some US money and the and the cartels would calm down and it kind of it kind of didn't work. The opposite happened. And he got deeper into the conflict and then he, you know I, I do believe he knew about some of the corruption, but as well it's like as well what you say at times is like um you know at some points it's like oh, we'll just let the Senate cartel run things because they you know get, let, let them take out the setters because the setters are causing all these kind of problems. So we kind of got aside with them so you know certain things he got put into that he mentioned that towards the end of administration and this is this is what he says he was like sitting around with his guys and was like okay think outside the box what do we do what do we do shit's not working and and the guy starts saying should we legalize drugs <laughs> it's like they were talking like let's legalize them and it was like wow um uh you know that's uh uh, you know, so they were seriously discussing this at one point. You know, it's just not, this shit's not working. Um, now, in terms of the Fast and Furious, um, he, so he described, he, he described how they, first of all, he said, this is the way he said it. He said that, first of all, they started getting, the Americans telling them, well, we've got an operation going on. It's going to be big. You know, you're going to like this. So supposedly it'd be good for them. But then they started arresting some cartel figures and they knew about, they're like, yeah, you know, we were able to buy guns. <laughs> you know, they, they, kind of, they kind of knew some of the Mexican cartel figures kind of realized they were being allowed to be these guns to go through, which gets again a bit like, okay, is there something worse around it? But again, this could just be a netness. These guys realize they're not stopping us I'm taking these guns over the border. Um, and then when it blew up, 
Felipe Calderon said that he de- they were the Mexican government deliberately didn't kind of join in the attacks on the Obama administration because they saw the attacks coming very much from like the NRA and stuff. And the NRA kind of jumped on this like um, this just this proves our point. You know, um, they're all they're all in bed. You know, they're they're, they're arming cartels. This is kind of so they were like, well, we you know why would we f- support and join with the NRA attacking the Obama administration um, as well when, when he said that about that? But it's uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, interesting, interesting his perspective. He's now he's now in Spain and he's now politically. Um, in in big problems here, you know, the people they want they want to see him in prison. They want to see Calderon in prison. Over, you know, they 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 see it as being he was in bed with the Sinaloa cartel. And Fast and Furious was proof of that, and it was all kind of added up to some big kind of plan. Um, I think there might be a lot of of kind of um, you know, very dumb things being taking place, as well as as, as you know, there is some conspiratorial or, or, or you know, very deep corruption as well. So what do you think about when he went up and essentially brought up the issue that's happening with guns? It seems like, and I think you highlighted this well, where he you know, kind of approached the situation with a six-foot pole because when the NRA was jumping on it, he recognized that that's not exactly the alley he wanted to go down. And it seems like when presidents in Mexico, we're seeing this recently, quote-unquote, go to battle with U.S. politicians, it ends up not being the the best formula we've seen this with you know the mexican president just recently there was a lot of anger coming out from republicans because he came out and essentially said after lindsey graham was looking to label the group as a terrorist organization the cartels and um it essentially was calling for looking for ways to mitigate republicans in, in future elections which again very controversial what do you think about him having that choice to step up and speak about the issues of guns and why do you think we're not seeing more politicians do that present from Mexico? Because again, that could make a massive difference in making sure that people understand this isn't something that's only affecting here in the U S it's that it has, you know, long tentacles that are really creating massive amounts of violence around the world. When Felipe Calderon, he went to a joint session of Congress and he bought up firearms trafficking. Um, he he told me about that that you know like this was he was having this crackdown on cartels and then they started seeing this is when this kind of escalation was happening and they were seeing suddenly you know their police were being outgunned and you know you were suddenly seeing cartels with a hundred guys with, with AR-15s and AK-47s and they were buying them from the United States and so suddenly realizing like how can we how can we how can we as a Mexican state fight this problem if they're being so heavily armed from the United States and that's a continuing issue now. Um, so I think he was um, justified in doing that. And some of the people saying, you know, you're going to go to the joint session of Congress and you're going to like attack them. Um, but he, you know, he went in there and did that. Now that might have kind of helped, you know, that kind of put political pressure. And then he had Fast and Furious, and then it kind of ended up getting knocked off the agenda. So it didn't work. Um, like in, in, they say, in the end, Felipe Calderon's historical legacy was off failure. Um, uh, but I think. You know he was justified in, in in doing that. If we look at the more recent issues now um, with Mexico, US, and and then and, it, and it's, it is tough um, on both sides. You know how do Mexico and the United States? I mean, we we need cooperation. We need people coming together and trying to figure out uh, damage limitation. <laughs> 
<laughs> reducing some of the damage on this. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it's hard, but then they, they need to. Now, in terms of the, the kind of calling them terrorists, calling cartels terrorist groups, um, I don't, you know, I'm not outraged by that. I don't think it's like a, you know, I think th- there's there's ways you can see acts they do as terrorism. What I do think is that this is the idea or what's being put by elements of some Republican figures right now saying, oh, we're going to bring in the military, we're going to cross over the border, we'll take these guys out. You know, we've got the best military in the world. You know, we, we can do this. Is It's a big, difficult, complicated situation. It's not that easy, right? You've got hundreds of thousands of people in these organizations and maybe millions of people involved in these organizations at secondary levels. Even if you cross over the border and kill a thousand people, doesn't scratch them. Um, you know, you could get the, you know, like find out where the chapitos are and then go in there and we'll take those out. Which the military, which has been they've been doing for like the last twenty years anyway, and it hasn't hasn't solved this. Just taking these guys out of military operations, which with, with the US agents there in some cases anyway. Um hasn't solved it. You get other guys pop up and 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 then if the US does go over a border and you know and it does an operation and it also kills some civilians at the same time, that creates all kinds of issues. Um, you know, US gets pulled into a to to a real uh, swamp. Um, so you know, it, it kind of sounds good. It might sound good. Um, you know, I I I, I appreciate and, and and sympathize with people saying these guys are seriously bad organizations. That's true. Mexico has been destabilized by these violent organizations. That's true. That the US should care about them spilling over. Yes. That fentanyl is a horrific problem that needs to be confronted. Yes. I agree with all of that. I think you know, the Republicans are right to bring up this rhetoric, um, to bring up these problems, and to say this is important and, and we need to take this stuff seriously. But look again deeper what the solutions to this, really what you want to do. Okay, US, you need US law enforcement cracking down hard on operations in the United States. Um, you've got to, how do you know, you've got to confront the issue of drug addiction in the United States, a big priority, a big political priority. How do you deal with, with drug addiction, drug use in the US. Um, you've got to stop guns going to these guys. Sure, you've got to work with Mexico on trying to help build up police capacity and fight these things. But these are difficult problems um, that don't necessarily um, gain the best headlines. You know, you, you kind of throw red meat to your base on both sides. People do this. Uh, and again, gets back to the kind of broken political system dealing with very, very challenging problems. Well, Johan, I think that's honestly the best way to wrap it up today. Seriously, thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, blood gun money out everywhere. It's like I said, a fantastic book. And honestly, I want to thank you too for the reporting that you're doing. You know, all the multiple novels you release, you know, journal entries, whatever you've done. It, it being able to follow you, being able to speak with you today, it's been a fantastic experience. And seriously, thank you for reporting on all this and really showcasing, like I've said many times, to people in America what's actually happening south of the border. Latin America and realistically around the world. So seriously, thank you. If you want to give a shout out to your social medias and let people know where they can find Blood Gut Money as well as um, your other books. Yeah, sure. Thanks much. It's great to be here. So like, uh, yeah, the, this is the new edition of Blood Gut Money, uh, officially released April 18th on paperback with a new um, afterword with some of the latest developments uh, in the law and in the issue of gun trafficking. With my first book, uh, El Narco, still like... Uh, 
still uh, uh, a popular book uh, there, and it's kind of wrote there, but a kind of bigger picture of Mexican drug cartels and my uh, second book, uh, Gangster Warlords, which uh, which also uh, chronicles uh, uh, organizations across the continent. Uh, you can see me, uh, website, yoangrillo.com, um, Substack, uh, Narco Politics, or look up Yoan Grillo. Uh, Twitter, Yoan Grillo, so all, the, all of my stuff, really, my name, I-O-A-N, G-R-I-L-L-O. And yeah, it was a great conversation. It was, uh, we went to some very interesting places, some very interesting insight, and we talked about some stuff, not the, the same kind of things, but really got some, some, some interesting, uh, perspectives on, on this, I think. Yeah. I wanted to cover all bases. Like I said, reading your book, I was like, there are so many thoughts in here on, on ways that people haven't even looked at the issue. And also the way that you're able to present what's happening down South, like I said, is just, it's unique. You've been there. If you've seen so many different things. And I think, being able to have conversations like this is how we actually come to some of those solutions we were talking about. So seriously, thank you for coming on again. Hopefully we can get another show down the road. I'll make sure I read up on those two, those two other books and maybe we'll get a conversation on those as well. Okay. Yeah. So we've got a shout out to all the, uh, uh, aftermath, uh, re- uh, aftermath followers, aftermath, uh, viewers. Uh, good to be uh, step into your world there. Awesome, man. Thank you. Oh,